As the legend of Cactus Jack grew, so too did his affinity for pain. Concerned independent promoters soon asked him to tame his increasingly brutal behavior. But Mick Foley always did things his way. Instead of compromise, he left the United States to seek satisfaction in a bizarre, sadistic wrestling subculture in Japan. And I'd heard rumor about these horrible matches that took place. And I didn't care. As far as I was concerned, this was my destiny. And I walked out the first time I saw barbed wire strung up in place of ring ropes. And I said, I'm finally home. Mrs. Foley's little boy is finally home. And Jimmy, I kid you not when I say it didn't matter the match. I wrestled on beds of nails. I wrestled on 10,000 thumbtacks. I wrestled on C4 explosives. And the funny thing was, it didn't matter how mutilated I was physically. I healed myself spiritually. Because for the first time, I was respected. I'll go so far to say I was loved. People lined up and chanted my name, Cactus Jack, Cactus Jack. They sure as hell didn't line up like they do here to spit on me, to pee in paper cups and pour it on me. I had my dignity, and I'm not sure I've got it anymore. Hello and welcome to episode 66 of the New Generation Project podcast, where we honour the heroes of Hulkamania and analyse the architects of attitude in looking at the dark ages of the WWF, the mid-90s. Today, we reach exactly four years from our starting point in taking a look at King of the Ring 1997. Wow. Had you clocked that? Yes. I was aware that the first thing we did was a King of the Ring. I remember that. Yeah, I remember that one, yeah. Well, it refers back to it in the show, so it's pretty hard to miss. My name is Stuart Brooks, and I'm joined today by our very own unhyped bros. It's Paul Mojo Scrivens. Hello. And Adam Woo 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 Wikes. (laughs) (laughs) It's how often known. Hello. How are you both doing? Good. Yourself? Yeah, not too bad. I didn't tell you this week. I've asked you how you were quicker. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's getting better and better each week. Yeah. You actually bother asking me these days. It's good stuff. I'm, I'm going to kind of preempt you next time and, and just ask you before we start recording. <laughs> <laughs> Been up to much? I went out last night to see uh, a friend that I've not seen in a while. Had a few drinks. Well, I went to a little, a little bar called Bitter and Twisted, which doesn't have any draft beers and has all the beers, like very, very small selections, but in casks and kegs and things like that. So I had a particularly lovely Titanic plum porter. Mm. I've no idea what you're on about. All right. Well, there you go. Scrivens, any amusing family stories for us? Kind of. But I'm not going to go into it. <laughs> okay, well, Adam told, told me earlier you once went to Wimbledon, which I didn't know. Yeah. I, yeah, I did go to Wimbledon, but I didn't get in. Okay, how come? So it was raining. As and, usual. And what happened is, so this was a school trip. So, so this was, I think, when I was in year 10 at school... 
went to Wimbledon. They had a number of tickets for court two, um, but they didn't have tickets so everyone were going to buy the rest of the tickets at the gate. So they kind of randomly allocated however many it was. So a number of people went and got in and, and went and had a look around, not seeing any tennis, but they went inside. And the rest of us queued up. But in order to try and get a cheaper deal for the school, they were going to make me and another girl pretend to be the kids of two of the PE teachers. <laughs> <laughs> but we never got in, but we did get stuff like free, I think, newspapers and Tropicana orange juice. <laughs> so so your, your trip to Wimbledon was like about three hours standing in the rain? Yeah, it's about well, probably more than that. Three, three or four hours standing in the rain. It's <laughs> just going <laughs> <laughs> i was kind of hoping that story would end with you meeting martina navratilova thus explaining why you knew who she was but it didn't i think everybody knows who martina navratilova is <laughs> possibly but i mean the, the big news in tennis yesterday wasn't it richard's brother yeah defeated novak djokovic Fitch, yeah yeah which i was gutted about because i do like novak djokovic I, i'm not such a fan of novak djokovic have you never seen that promo that he does where he dresses up as maria sharapova what? It was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's it was genius. On BBC about four or five years ago. What? Honestly, hang on, hang on, hang on. It was black and white, and it was Novak Djokovic wearing <laughs> a blonde wig, pretending to be Maria Sharapova, talking about playing tennis. They never explained it before. They never explained it afterwards, <laughs> and they never repeated it, but Adam will back me up that this definitely happened. <laughs> yeah, I think if it was... One of us saying, oh, well, I saw this, then no one would but oh yeah, we can corroborate, this actually happened, this was on the BBC. It, it must be on the internet, though, we'll have to Yeah, we'll have to, have to dig that one up. Yeah, but I think that's when we uh, re-evaluated our position on Novak Djokovic and decided that actually he's very likeable, because yeah. he does stuff like that. Exactly. Okay, fair, fair dues, but yeah, well done to Sam Quarry. Sam Quarry. <laughs> <laughs> so, you've been up to much? I finished an awful job the other day. Yeah. Yeah, so so that's quite exciting. I've got two weeks now to kind of reevaluate my life before starting a new one. Probably watch some pay per views. Probably watch some pay per views. It may, without sounding too ominous, have somewhat of an impact on on the podcast, but we'll we'll discuss that at a later date. Okay. Oh, interesting. Alongside this episode over at soundcloud.com slash newgenpodcast, we've posted another very special piece of bonus content. This week, we're taking a look at a match from the 17th of April 2011, the 1-2-3 Kid versus El Generico from Chikara's King of Trios 2011, Night 3. And you can watch the match along with us over at chikaratopia.com with a seven-day free trial for the service. And if you like what you see, it's only $7.99 per month and contains over 270 shows with 680-plus hours of content. That's soundcloud.com slash newgenpodcast if you want to hear our thoughts and chikaratopia.com if you want to watch along with us lovely stuff one of the main focuses of WWF television at this point in our timeline is Paul Bearer and the dark secret he holds over The Undertaker so we all know who and what the secret turns out to be but this week's challenge to you the audience was to give us alternatives for what that horrible secret might have been the following are our favourite suggestions Paolo Von Marshall that he once shat the bed and told his missus that Taker did it. <laughs> That's a pretty awful secret. Yeah. Have you ever shat the bed and blamed any of the baby scrivens? No. Like Ungolo did this massive dump. <laughs> no, but, but baby scrivens, and this, this was a story that I almost told a bit ago, but now you've said that, I've got to tell it. Kind of just, just getting up yesterday morning it was, and, and baby scrivens kind of walks into walks into our bedroom, and it's like, come downstairs, daddy, come downstairs. It's like, okay, come downstairs. Walk downstairs and we just go through our front room, just as we're kind of going through into the sitting room. It's like, Daddy, can you smell anything? And it just, <laughs> it just got up really early and just covered a massive dump in his body. 
<laughs> but I just love the way he's kind of like, it's like, not I've done a poo or anything like that. It's like, can you smell anything? It's like that air of pride. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was a corker. But, um, <laughs> like father, like son. Yeah. Lovely stuff. Gareth Scannell. In a shoot promo, Bearer mocks Mark Galloway's original planned gimmick of a budget zombie, wearing a shower curtain, complimentary brisket gets stuck to his face, and tungsten tip screws as fingernails. The gimmick is finally rejected when it's pointed out that zombies don't have tails, or in this case, a flex from a kettle. <laughs> Excellent partridge reference. Jeremy Gordon. Paul Jeremy Bear. Corbyn? Jeremy Gordon. Oh. Jeremy Corbyn's Did actually just... now <laughs> sending in suggestions for us. He's, he's a bit worried that he might get pushed out of the Labour Party, so, so he's getting... Trying to build up a following with wrestling audiences. He's trying to be the next Richard Query. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Gordon. Okay. Paul Bearer reveals himself to the audience and now as a registered... <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, you don't need to finish that. Uh, no, I, I do. Paul Bearer reveals... Himself to the audience and is now registered as a sex offender. <laughs> Lovely stuff. That would be a horrible secret. CJ Fleck. Taker secretly moonlights as the overnight radio host of Sleepy Radio Norwich, where he rants about how gravediggers are much more important than farmers. <laughs> Davy Smith. That's he used to trick the Undertaker by mashing up carrots in his mashed potato, ensuring that Taker got one of his five a day. <laughs> Do you have to do that? Baby Screw and quite likes carrots, and Ungolo's not ready for food yet. <laughs> Still on the milk. Still on the milk. Andrew Webster. Paul Bearer reveals the 11 secret herbs and spices of KFC chicken, <laughs> which leads to a WrestleMania main event match pitching The Undertaker against Colonel Sanders in a KFC recipe on a pole match. That sounds like a match, doesn't it? <laughs> Very nice. I've always thought 11 herbs and spices in KFC... A bit much. Well, well, they, they, they count things like salt and pepper in it, though, don't they? So it's not really... Well, I think salt makes up ten of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, salt's more of a seasoning. I don't, know. I don't know. It's not really a herb. Is it a spice? spice? It might be. I don't know. I don't know about the technicality, but seasoning for me, really. I think it's mostly salt. Gregor Nicholson. That Taker and Paul Bearer are actually twins, and Bearer has sold the rights to their life story to Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. <laughs> but who good. will play who? <laughs> you ever seen Twins, Paul? No. Really? Good film. It did, did work out when you were doing that thing on um, Twitter after the last episode that I've seen more than four films that I like. Okay. You want to name a fifth? Oh, I can't think of any off the top of my head. But, <laughs> but, now, but now I know there are some. Bloody hell. Because people come up with suggestions that I had seen and had liked. Robert Hunter. Paul Bear reveals the deep, dark secret that The Undertaker hates cucumbers. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm fairly suspicious of things that contain such a high proportion of water. Apparently, the Undertaker hates cucumbers thing is a legitimate thing. <laughs> really? It comes from a Jim Cornette Paul Bearer shoot interview <laughs> produced by Ring of Honor, where Bearer claims that Taker can't be within a hundred mile radius of a cucumber. <laughs> And that he once saw Taker throw up all over a Waffle House because someone put a slice of cucumber in his iced tea. And that Brian Adams, a.k.a. Crush, used to put cucumbers in his hat as a rib. (laughs) (laughs) 
He claims that this fear of cucumbers comes from something in Taker's childhood, but doesn't reveal what. Is he a bit like cats? Because they're afraid of cucumbers. Well, well that's what I was thinking, yeah. yeah. Allegedly cats, cats are... Cats afraid are... of cucumbers? Have you never seen that video where they put cucumbers behind cats? When the cat notices it, it goes apeshit. Yeah. I think it is this like, high proportion of water thing. I think it's deeply <laughs> suspicious. I mean, that, that's pretty much me and salad for you. <laughs> cats and The Undertaker can both pick up on this high proportion of water thing. Yeah. I think so. Will Johnson. Now, this is all in capital, so I feel like I might need to shout it, but I'll, I'll just raise my voice slightly. You never built that double-wide, double-deep casket. You hired someone else to do it. You're a lazy, lazy man. That was probably a bit loud. <laughs> that was much more commitment than I expected from <laughs> Yeah, I really didn't see that one coming. Most but... committed relationship. <laughs> sorry, sorry. What? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Adam. Chris Bates. Bearer reveals that the Undertaker's secret is that Michelle McCall is actually a sentient cucumber in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they really went for it with the cucumbers. Yep. I've never heard that before. Me, me neither. Yeah. Richard Quarry. Paul Bearer. Re- <laughs> <laughs> Go on, say his name again. No, it's, not, it's not that. It's re- reveals. It's yes. Reveals. Reveals. Richard Quarry. Paul Bearer reveals The Undertaker voted for Brexit. Ooh, topical. That is topical. It's a, yeah. A, a hot potato. Political hot potato. And I'm not a hot sure. cucumber. What, what will this do for the British wrestling scene? Will it have any impact on that? Well, I don't know. It depends on the price of imports coming in, I guess. Michael Coppolino? Paul Bearer reveals that The Undertaker killed and fed him Mini Vader, <laughs> thus explaining Paul's changing look and attitude. <laughs> I did wonder where he went. <laughs> S. Doyle Granger. Do you remember that day, Undertaker? You and your little brother used to race cars in the streets of New Jersey, and you were always fast. Oh, yes, but he, your brother, was always born to run. It was you who cut his brakes, dead man. It was you who left our city of ruin to conquer the wrestling world, while your brother oh so patiently waited to confront his murderer. That's right, dead man. Springsteen's alive. Springsteen's alive, Undertaker. This leads to The Undertaker versus Bruce Springsteen and No No Holds Barred Drag Race, live on location from Freehold, New Jersey. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I, I gather that's some kind of Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, it'd been a while since I've read one of those out, really. Hmm. Max Fleischer. Paul Bearer reveals his true identity as a salesman for an urn manufacturing company. <laughs> and that he, on purpose, left The Undertaker's locker unlocked so that every Tom, Dick, Togo and Karma could steal <laughs> the urn, in turn forcing The Undertaker to purchase... Per, in turn, forcing The Undertaker to purchase... <laughs> <laughs> right, <yep. laughs> In turn, forcing the Undertaker to buy new urns <laughs> from various Urns are us. It is all revealed in an episode of Raw where Bearer tears off his face and squeals, It was me all along, Taker! It was me all along! In a voice that sounds remarkably like Paul Scrivens. <laughs> Classic. Well done. P2 Polonan. The Undertaker's horrible secret is that he is bad at playing dominoes and the other members of the BSK are laughing at him behind his back. (laughs) Very nice. See if you can guess what's coming with this one. Scott Cavaliero. Paul Barrow would reveal that he was the third man in the American males. (laughs) I don't want to see him in that outfit. 
yeah, that'd be got, disturbing. Got another topical Europe-based one. Go on then. Harry Green. Maybe Bearer can reveal the big fucking mystery in why Roy Hodgson put bloody Kane on corners in the 92nd minute. In brackets, I am angry right now. <laughs> I think a lot of the nation is quite angry. Yeah, I wonder I mean, what he could be referring to. We're, we're wishing Iceland well in, in their match that is currently taking place against the France. It was 1-0 the last time we checked to France. But but we're fingers crossed for, for Iceland. I've been to Iceland, I like it there. The shop or the country? Both. What's better? The country. The country, I mean, I, I don't like going places, but I like Iceland. Where did I, you go in Iceland? Reykjavik. Okay. It, it pretty much is. That's most of Iceland. It's not. But <laughs> <laughs> it, pretty much anybody who goes to Iceland just goes to Reykjavik. So you can say Reykjavik, but you can't say purchase. <laughs> <laughs> no. Owen Young. Paul reveals that in 19 years, England will be so bad they can't even beat Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we delve into some thoughts on the Euros quickly? Yes, yes, we should. England are bad. And should feel bad. Yeah, their football's bad and they should feel bad. Uh, I mean, I think the most disappointing thing is, I mean, tactically, I'm genuinely saying this, you could literally take any bloke from a pub, put him in charge of the England team, and they would improve. And I I honestly don't think that is an exaggeration. I, I, I must say I thought Wales did really well in their game. Yeah. yeah. Because Wales didn't play well against England at all, I didn't think, but they, they played really well. Against, against Belgium. Uh, Belgium. And I quite fancy them to, to beat Portugal, if I'm honest. Yeah, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. Because Portugal have not set the world light on. No. Or even Europe light on this. Um, <laughs> in this tournament. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's sort of baffling. And then the statement that kind of confuses me the most is Roy Hodgson saying, after the Iceland game, the players have done everything that's been asked of them. So you ask them to play poorly and go out to Iceland. Okay, so I've just checked the live score. France 4, Iceland 0. <laughs> really? Oh my god! I think because we we watched because Scribbins was late coming over. We kind of watched the build up. To, to I'm a busy match. man. He is a busy man, and but it was half an hour of the. I think it's it's ITV, isn't it? Yeah. Trying to basically excuse the fact that England did so badly by by talking up the fact that Iceland was so great, right? And I think that you know if France just battered them four nil, it really proves that England just played poorly. I don't think there's any hiding that England played poorly. Well, they're, they're, they're trying to give it a bloody good go. <laughs> Bradley Barkowitz. Paul Bearer reveals that every Christmas when Taker was young, it was not Santa who ate all the cookies he left out. Bearer still refuses to reveal who it was that did, all assumptions on him for obvious reasons. But the truth is revealed months later when the Christmas creature makes his debut to attack Taker. It's all a big build-up to their December blow-off match at In Your House, Good Tidings and Fear. It's a holiday-themed casket match where the casket is wrapped in festive paper and the match ends when the box is sealed and a bow is tied around it. Yeah, I'd probably watch that. That's actually a quite yeah, unique, yeah. unique twist on a casket match. Yeah. You've seen Kane as the Christmas creature, right? No. no. You'll, you'll have to watch that, yeah. That, that was a pre-WWF Kane gimmick. Okay. Wow. Had about as much longevity as Santa Claus. <laughs> Christmas gimmicks don't go down too well, do they? Not in January. No. <laughs> Through November. <laughs> Alistair Hiding. Barrett reveals that Taker's parents are sex people. <laughs> <laughs> don't rub your fanny on me. I wasn't. Brendan Gordon. The secret is that Bearer knows that there's an impendingly cringy, embarrassing dad-level midlife crisis <laughs> in The Undertaker's future, complete with motorcycle and limp biscuit entrance. Yeah... Mm. I didn't mind that. I wasn't a massive fan. Fernando Fernandez. 
Paul tells Taker, Remember that double-wide, double-deep casket that we spent all that time building? Well, I lied. It was merely 1.5 times wide <laughs> and 1.5 times deep. I didn't have the heart to tell you that the measurements were off. Yeah. Dominic Schnendelors. Paul Bearer reveals something about Kane and Undertaker's past, but he does it while delivering a little rap to the theme of the song Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. In West Death Valley, born and raised on the graveyards where he spent most of his days throwing out Maxim, relaxing all hot and shooting some fireball outside of school. When his larger brother, who was up to no good, started making fires in the neighbourhood, he got in one little fire and his mum got scared and said, you're moving with Pulvera in the WWF. <laughs> Five stars. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, yeah, well done. I often sing that tune to, to Baby Scrivens. Really? Yeah, yeah, it's one of the... That's a my MCA with main, main two. <laughs> Steve Downton. Paul Bearer. I was never really a mortician, I studied wrestle maths. <clears throat> yeah. Fair enough. Rocky Sherrington. Paul Bearer reveals that he's actually just been Bertha Faye in disguise all along. <laughs> She's Taker and Kane's concerned art and was trying to keep them out of shenanigans. <laughs> <laughs> good Bertha Faye reference. Yeah. And shenanigans. Sh- sh- and that's a good word. Ben Chidwick, <laughs> after, mist- after mistaking the ashes in the urn for BBQ rub. Sorry, that's just a barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're really on fire tonight. <laughs> you know. Ben Chidwick, after mistaking the ashes in the urn for barbecue rub, he replaced them with Ico Pro. <laughs> Daniel Sparky Baker, he cashed out his bet on Leicester City to win the Premier League in November. Ooh. You'd be a lot richer now. Yeah. Ben Counter. I made you from the corpses of the killer bees. <laughs> Don't think we've ever had a killer bees reference on the show. No. Good stuff. Martin Summers. The Undertaker was the second gunman on the grassy knoll. I don't know if how would Americans take that? I think they're okay with it now. I think they're kind of over it. Okay. I think so. There's there's a museum where you can buy stuff from a gift shop. Yeah, you get a lot of mugs with JFK's face on it. And, and people are actually wandering into the middle of the road to point at the X where his head got blown off. Seriously? Yeah. There's an X on the road when we went there. Yeah. I took pictures of it, but I didn't go in the middle of the road and go, look. Because there were still cars driving. <laughs> yes. It's an active road. Yeah. Andrew Titchmarsh. That Michelle McCall is only 17 at the moment. Cashback. <laughs> Thank you very much for all of your suggestions. As ever, they're particularly hard to whittle down this time. I think there were some excellent, excellent suggestions this week. Some genuinely, genuinely very funny ones. And there was loads of them. And loads of them, yeah. So it'd take a good portion of time to read them. Yes. Do you want pro wrestling merchandise? Do you want surprises? Do you want a box full of wrestling goodies delivered to your door each month? If so, go to www.wrestlecrate.co.uk and select your monthly plan starting at just 11.99. They handpick your wrestling loot every month with exclusive DVDs and t-shirts you won't find elsewhere. Wrestlecrate has brought you content from Ring of Honor, Chikara, Preston City Wrestling, WWE and many other promotions featuring art cards, stickers, coloring books, magazines, autographs, graphic novels, posters, compilation discs, figures, mugs, colouring books, keychains and more. And if you want 10% off your first crate, enter New Gen Podcast at the checkout to receive a discount. WrestleCrate, the world's first wrestling subscription box. 
It's Sunday, June the 8th, 1997, and we are live from the Providence Civic Centre in Providence, Rhode Island, in front of a crowd of 9,312 for a live gate of $202,963. 74,672 dollars worth of merchandise was sold at the event, presumably including a few overpriced inflatable chairs. Five ones, sorry. <laughs> That's just ridiculous. Is there any figures about how many of those chairs they actually sold? No, no, I've not got that. Well, they're, they're all in some <laughs> massive landfill site just, somewhere. Or presumably they just had one sort of big, like, latex fire. <laughs> just got rid of them all. It's just... real health and safety uh, <laughs> nightmare. The show drew 140,000 buyers on pay-per-view for a gross of $1.59 million, which has to be considered slightly disappointing, as that figure is 3,000 less than last month's In Your House pay-per-view, and one of the big five should be doing better numbers. Mm. Yeah, yeah. In the free-for-all match prior to the beginning of the pay-per-view portion of the evening, the headbangers, Mosh and Thrasher, defeated the team of Double J, Jesse James and Bart Gunn in 6 minutes and 10 seconds. I bet that was a cracker. Mm. Scintillating, I've heard. Tonight will be a night of firsts. For the first time, two reigning tag team champions will put their gold aside to wage war against one another. But this is no ordinary tag team. And these are no ordinary combatants. Both men are looking for respect from an unlikely source, a partner. For the first time, we may see an African-American as WWF champion. But Farouk is not going into battle alone. He has the support of a nation. A nation he has manipulated into believing its existence is predicated solely on this victory. A victory that must come at the hands of a vulnerable undertaker whose haunting past has forced an unlikely reunion with Paul Bearer. For the first time, one of these men will become king of the ring, and to the victor will go the spoils. Tonight will be a night of firsts, as Super Soaker presents the 1997 King of the Ring. We open with a video package hyping first Steve Austin versus Shawn Michaels as tag team champions facing each other, then The Undertaker versus Farouk focusing on an African-American becoming WWF champion. Taker's reunion with Paul Bearer is also mentioned. Oh, and there's a King of the Ring tournament as well. It's all very dramatic until Super Soaker is revealed as the sponsor. Well, that's what I've got. Like, something quite dramatic, sponsored by Super Soaker. And it's... Does Partridge do like a piss take of that somewhere along the line? One of his shows is always, they're always sponsored by Ginsters pasties, pasties and things, aren't they? Yeah, and it's sort of called finger poking at this idea that we're just going to take a sponsor that really doesn't fit in with the tone of what we're trying to say and just slap their logo everywhere. Uh, like I, I noted down, I, I thought this was quite a crisp little promo at the start. I thought it was quite good, but like you say, any gravitas is completely like whipped out from underneath it with Super Soaker. Yeah. Or maybe just spray down with cold water, do I? If you want to reduce any kind of humour from like a tense situation, then we now know it. It's revealed the event to be sponsored by Super Soaker. Do they still make Super Soakers? I guess so. Yeah. It's just a glorified water pistol, boys. Well, yes. But... Well, yeah, but they were the best water pistols, right? And you paid over the odds for them. Yeah, they're really expensive. I never had one. Yeah. I did come up with an idea the other day based around water pistols. For, for just people who are inconsiderate and... and Getting away. It's like a supermarket thing, like I've talked about before. So I think I was probably in the supermarket when I came up with this. And my idea was if you could carry a water pistol, and if they annoyed you, you could get your water pistol and squirt them with it. So it made it look like they wet themselves. <laughs> so, so, so your idea is that you want to fire water pistols at people who annoy you at supermarkets? Basically, yeah. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure how you market that. 
It's not so much just a marketable thing. It's, it's more just... Can I get away with it? <laughs> more just I think you should be allowed to do it. No, don't, don't do it. I'm not sanctioning it. Um, <laughs> I bear no responsibility for the results of what may happen, but um, sometimes I feel like that inside at supermarkets. We cut inside the arena and fireworks go off and fans go mental as more dramatic music plays. Vince McMahon welcomes us to the show alongside Jim Ross, who Vince looks at lovingly while the former talks. Mm. Mm. Like, he started doing this on Raw. When JR talks, he just looks at him in a very sort of loving manner. Almost in the same way that he looks at Shawn Michaels. No, there's no one who looks at him the same way as he looks at Shawn Michaels. Vince introduces the foreign language announced teams by standing up and pointing at them. That's weird. But he misses that one guy in the middle whose name he clearly doesn't know. Or he's just there as a sort of technician, perhaps yeah. he's actually a commentator. Felt, it just felt a bit rude. But normally, like, they pan the camera over to these other announced teams, but this one, like, Vince just gets up and goes, there's the Spanish guys, <laughs> there's the French guys, and, and, and that's weird. Yeah, it is. Um, I thought the crowd seemed quite happy. Yeah, the start of this show, they, they are big into it, like... I mean, the, the, they do everything they can to beat it out of them. But... <laughs> oh, certainly, but yeah, <laughs> this crowd very early on, a lot of my notes in certainly the first couple of matches is that the, the crowd are up for anything. Yeah. Our opening bout is a King of the Rings semi-final match pitting Ahmed Johnson against Hunter Hurst Helmsley. So, for the first time in the history of the tournament, the 1997 brackets began with only eight men rather than the traditional 16, with the quarterfinals happening over the five weeks of Roy's War leading into the semi-finals and final on this pay-per-view. Ahmed Johnson was the first man to qualify on the May 12, 1997 episode of Raw when he beat Hunter Hurst Helmsley by disqualification when China interfered and hit him with a chair. Yeah. Did you catch that? Ahmed Johnson qualified for this tournament but, so by how, beating has, Triple H. So Triple H is out of the tournament, yet he's in the tournament. Yes. Do you want to explain that one to us? Hunter was eliminated from this tourney in the first qualifying match. On the following week's 19th of May Raw, Hunter would sub for a still-injured Vader, with the storyline being that Helmsley had not been informed that he could be eliminated from the tournament by disqualification, so he threatened to sue the WWF. Uh, so he wants the rules stating to him before each match? Apparently so. So it's like England could technically say, oh, we didn't realise we had to score more goals in Iceland to beat them. Well, it's like after we all voted Brexit that everyone started Googling what is the EU. After England <laughs> lost that knockout match, they all started Googling what is a knockout match. <laughs> Presumably after losing this King of the Ring qualifier match, Helmsley started, I don't know, going on Lycos or Ask Jeeves and going, what is the King of the Ring tournament? (laughs) To prevent this landmark case from going any further, Hunter would be given Vader's spot, qualifying when he pinned Vader's schedule opponent, Crush. And so was that planned all along as as the thing, or was Hunter just lucky? It's it's a rewrite, yes. Okay. Ahmed, in your face, Johnson's music hits. Sometimes he is in your face. Sometimes he's in your knees with all his knee pads. (laughs) See, the thing is... The, it's kind of ruined by the fact that I knew who wins the, the tournament. Yeah. But I could totally see a King Armoured. Like, he, he, he would have been a really logical person to, to have win the tournament. Can, I, can I be honest with you? Go on then. I forgot who won this tournament. I saw Armoured Johnson come out. I thought, Armoured oh, Johnson's going to win this tournament. And then as soon as Triple H came out, I thought, oh, well, actually, he wins this tournament. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of like within seconds, all my hopes were dashed for, for King Armoured. King Ahmed would have been good. I'd have liked to hear his coronation speech. Well, if it's anything on a a par with what he says in the ring towards the end of this show, it'd be brilliant. His career must have a substantial drop-off because he gets another big pop. And less than a year from now, he's gone, but he's still getting massive reactions every time we see him. He's never failed. I think he must be about the consistently the most popular person that we've seen. In every single appearance, he's super over. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I thought it was quite interesting for me on the network 
because I had problems yet again. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. But one of the problems I had this time is it kept trying to get me to watch NXT. <laughs> like, like, genuinely, what, what would happen? I don't know if this has happened to anybody else. So on my PlayStation 3. So just watching, this was just the entrances. And this seemed to be when it glitched a lot. But about three or four times last night, it would just like pop up with like, watch NXT. <laughs> like, so your notes are on a random episode of NXT. And then, but then, when I tried to go back to the episode, I had to go back to the start and fast forward it to the same right place. Really there's something weird. wrong with your PlayStation. Yeah. I think it could be, or it, that's what it really wants me to watch NXT. Hmm. JL says that if Ahmed doesn't win this tournament, it's a toss-up between the other competitors. <laughs> it's not wrong at WrestleMass. <laughs> if he doesn't win it, one of the other guys in the tournament will. Hunter Hurst Helmsley is out next alongside China, who walks menacingly behind him. He's got a nice jacket this time. Like I don't know if it's his usual one, but it's kind of like green, kind of, I don't know if it's trim or just kind of like the lapels. Couldn't see because of lighting, but I thought it looked lovely. I know, so there's a sign that says China is sexy, but it's spelt like the country. Is that is that deliberate misspelling or they like the country? Or maybe they just, like you say, find countries with a population of over one billion attractive. Yeah, I, I could see that country being the number one economic superpower, so it's pretty sexy. He's just trying to get in with them. Vince credits China as being the reason Helmsley has been successful recently. I'm not sure exactly what he's referencing there because he hasn't really done a lot lately. Mm. Feuded with Goldust a lot, lost some of them, won some of them. God, that Goldust feud. The brackets for this tourney come up on screen with Lawler named as King, which makes it look mm. like he's already won it. Won it. Mm. Yeah, it should be Lawler. What I really liked about this is it's, it's good to see that by looking at the brackets, they're obeying bid mass. Excuse me? So, so brackets, indices... Division, multiplication, addition, subtraction is the order to do your, your calculations in. So by getting the brackets out of the way first, they were obeying bid mass at WrestleMass. <laughs> China enters the ring and stares down Ahmed, who sits on the top rope pondering things, which seems to be his new gimmick at the start of all his matches. Less intense, although more intense. Did you see his eye? He's, he's sort of got like a red eye, hasn't like, he? Bl- it looked really yeah. bloodshot. I didn't spot that. Yeah, when you get this close-up shot of his face, yeah, one of his eyes looks a bit battered. He's like Savio's ear. Vince says that you couldn't get further apart culturally than Ahmed and Hunter. Ahmed gets a massive pop just for standing up. Brilliant. Yeah, he's, he really has just got the, the crowd in the palm of his hand. They lock up and Ahmed throws Hunter down to a big reaction. Another lock up and Hunter tries for a headlock, but Ahmed bounces him off and lets Hunter run into him before spouting some gibberish. <laughs> Ahmed does Hunter's curtsy for another pop. I quite like that. He's not very smooth with it, but I quite like it. JR tells us that Hunter needs to use science to beat Ahmed. Ahmed wants a test of strength, which Hunter seemingly goes for, but boots Ahmed in the gut instead. He tries a chop in the corner, but Ahmed no-sells it. Another is just as successful, and Ahmed hits a huge gorilla press, slamming Helmsley to the mat before he rolls outside. Is that the one where he also does a few presses? Yeah. Like, that I thought was genuinely impressive. Super strong Ahmed. Yeah. JR bangs on about science some more. Hunter re-enters the ring and pokes Ahmed in the eye. He backs Ahmed in the corner and whips him across the ring, but Ahmed bounces out and hits a big clothesline to Helmsley. I mean, just just before one random, really random note that I've got, just before the eye poke, face rake thing, Ahmed Johnson's got a bit of tongue action going on. Yeah, he pokes his tongue out quite a lot in this yeah. match. A bit of tongue action going on. Yeah, I'm not sure I like that in wrestling. It's a bit like um, what The Undertaker develops later on in his career when he pins people. Ahmed hits a scoop slam, but misses one of his screaming elbow drops. (laughs) Helmsley gingerly throws Ahmed to the outside and whips him into the steel steps, which Ahmed takes the bump with his bottom. 
Yeah, the classic. His bottom stays contained, doesn't it, for the whole of this match? Yeah, it does, yeah. Yeah, they, weird. They, they do. I say, well, I say they do. JR talks about Ahmed not getting over-anxious. I don't think Ahmed knows what anxiety is. <laughs> Did you notice, <laughs> you know, he... when, when he gets rammed into the steps and he falls on the floor... When he gets up again, the big sort of like grease slick that's on the mat from where Ahmed's been, like, all, no. his, all his oil is just sort of like rubbed off. See, what would be great if all the wrestlers walking around the ring like just slipped on it? <laughs> Helmsley poses in the ring to big booze. The crowd here at the start is definitely one of the louder ones we've had in a while. Hmm. This is not a note I'll continue to write throughout the show. No. But mm. certainly in this opening match, they're, they're up for it. Yeah, they, they, they've, they've come with the right attitude for it, haven't they? And, and that move into steps what was um, Triple H's manoeuvring, I noted down. Helmsley hits a baseball slide and brings Ahmed back inside. Right. How did Ahmed not get out of the way of that baseball slide? Because there's somewhere people kind of, they get up and it's done quickly, you can't understand. But he just stood there while Triple H was clearly just running at him to do a baseball slide. We're seeing quite a different Ahmed Johnson yes. in this match. I think this, I'd like to say more, it's slower and more deliberate, but it's not, it's just slower. Some, something slightly off about him. But do, you, do you think it's the fact that he, he wasn't going over? Because I, I think, the you know, here's a guy that's on a pretty good run. Yeah. Who's so over. He must be quite miffed why he isn't winning this tourney. Possibly, but I just think it's sort of this... You know, people often refer to Ahmed sort of post-kidney injury not being the same guy he was before. But, you know, he's been back since kind of December time and... I would say this is the first real time I've thought, wow, he feels different Yes, in this match. Yeah, in all, in all his other performances, he's been classic armoured. Yeah. But the, there's, sort of, there's something a bit missing from his performance. Helmsley heads to the top rope and hits an axe handle covering for a two count. Ahmed chants from the crowd. Ahmed reverses an Irish whip and we get a messy mid-ring exchange where Ahmed just sort of punches Hunter. Ahmed then hits his scissor kick to Helmsley's bottom, followed by a big back body drop. Good butt kick. He hits a poor spine buster and signals it's time for the Pearl River plunge. Yeah, now normally his spine busters are spot on. Yeah, but th- this one again just doesn't look quite right. China gets up on the apron and Ahmed throws Hunter away to confront her. Helmsley knees Ahmed in the spine and hits the pedigree for the three to booze at seven forty-two. Yeah, this, this is weird, isn't it? Hunter and China bail quickly, and Ahmed chases them exactly as far as the entranceway, visibly halting his chase as he leaves the arena. And he's got form for that. Yes, this is not a new occurrence. Thoughts on this one? It is not as good as I'm accustomed to seeing from an Armour Johnson match. Armour Johnson matches have never really been like technical classics, but they've always been entertaining, and he does some stuff very well. But it almost seemed like he wasn't wasn't all there. It was about, you know, 70% of Armour. He was missing something in the match, and I think it suffered because of that. I felt a little bit let down by it. I was expecting this to be quite a fiercely contested match with a bit more venom and a bit more passion, and it didn't have the wow factor that I thought it could. I also thought it was a bit short and the wrong man went over. Yeah, so I, I just sort of see this as this must be the beginning of the decline for Ahmed because he looked way different in this match than I think we've ever seen him before. He looked slow and pondering, and his spine buster, which is usually one of his smoother signature spots, if you can describe any Ahmed Johnson yeah. move as smooth. Like... It, it's, it's normally done with. An awful lot of intensity, but it's it's also done very, very competently as well. Yeah. But this was kind of slow and awkward. And, and it looked awful. Yeah, it just... I, I don't know what's gone on here, because if it's the kidney thing, then how come he hasn't 
been like this since he came back from his injury. Mm. So I, I don't know. Not sure either that a knee to the back and a pedigree should have been putting Ahmed away. Like mm. that just didn't feel like a big enough finish to put him down, considering yeah. what we've seen put him down previously. Yeah. That said, he got a tremendous reaction for everything he did, and it probably helped Helmsley's heat to be beating someone like Ahmed on his way to the final. The match gets True. an A for reaction, but probably a D minus for effort. Mm. Yeah, I think that's very fair. Up next is Mankind versus Jerry the King Lawler in our other King of the Ring semi-final. We saw Jerry the King Lawler qualify for the pay-per-view portion of this tournament when he beat Goldust on the May 26th Raw is War. Mankind would be the final man to qualify when he pinned Savio Vega on the June 2nd Raw after miscommunication between Vega and his Nation of Domination stablemate Crush. Jerry Lawler would provide commentary for the bout, declaring that he didn't care who he faced in the semi-final match here tonight, while also getting in an absolute gem on commentary. Ari Mankind, Lawler offered, Nobody cares about Mankind's childhood. He looks like he was born at 50 miles an hour into a wall. <laughs> I've never heard anything quite like that. I'm not, I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> the four men making up the semi-finals of the tourney would square off on the 7th of June shotgun Saturday night, with Mankind and Ahmed Johnson picking up the win over Hunter Hurst Helmsley and Jerry the King Lawler when Ahmed pinned Lawler after the King and Helmsley began arguing. We move swiftly on as Mankind makes his entrance to a pretty positive reaction, which Vince and JR acknowledge on commentary, saying it wouldn't be something he would be used to. Mm. I think it's well-deserved. We see highlights of Mankind advancing over Savio Vega, despite the efforts of Jerry the King Lawler and the botched interference of Crush. I would like this to be the biggest moment of my wrestling life, but apparently Paul Bearer has more important things to do. I'm not about to let that stop me on my quest to be the king of the ring. You see, throughout history, there have been cruel kings who have kept their subjects down. There have been benevolent kings who held their people up. What kind of a king would you like me to be? <laughs> what kind of a king would you like Mrs. Bowley's little boy to be? You see, Jerry Lawler can surround himself with royal robes. But as far as I'm concerned, the emperor has no clothes! That's not a pleasant thought. Jerry Lawler is not a king. He is a pawn in mankind's game. And as the emperor with no clothes, there is only one sight more sickening that I can think of than Jerry Lawler walking around stark naked. That would be me walking around, stark naked. <laughs> Mankind grabs a microphone and sits in the ring, rocking, asking where his uncle Paul has gone. I quite, I quite like this this storyline. Actually, the the feeling of Mankind after Bear has been with him for an awful long time, and they've been kind of that partnership, and then as 
as soon as he gets his Undertaker back, he sort of like ran off to do the more important things, leaving mankind alone. Quite quite like that. That abandonment. Yeah. Do you think there's like a confusing overlap between the interviews Mankind's doing and and this storyline? It doesn't blend in quite as well because we've had loads loads of humanising of the character in the interviews. And although I think this this little arc is exploring some more of those themes and feelings, it's still very much the Mankind character. So, yeah, it fits thematically, but it doesn't fit in terms of the interview segment and the Mankind character on screen. I think it's fine because he's quite a muddled character. Mm. Yeah. So so actually, although it's quite stilted, I don't think it harms anything. And certainly, like, Foley's performance is very, very good. Apparently, yes, Paul Bearer had more important things to do. Mankind gets a pop for referencing his quest to be King of the Ring. He gets to his feet and asks the crowd what sort of king he should be. <laughs> yeah, like Vince just like, laughs at an inappropriate time. Yes, he's, he's doing that more and more. We get shots of various pro-Mankind signs in the crowd as Mankind targets Lawler with his promo, claiming that Lawler is an emperor with no clothes, and that the only thought more disturbing than that is him stark naked. And then it does a bang-bang. Which pops JR, yes. So... Why? Well, when did the bang bang start? Just with this. He, obviously, they've referenced him being Cactus Jack in these weekly interviews. Yeah. So, yeah, he's throwing that in there. Excellent. Vince and the King. Before we get your response to that, let's take a look at how you advanced to this evening here against Mankind. You were matched up against Goldust, and you did what you do best. You cheated. What? Your feet are on the ropes. Obviously, there you get the win, and then you roll right out. Victorious there was the King Jerry Lawler. But then at the top of the ramp, you went roll, 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 rolling all the way home. And that insult to injury, Marlena stepped right on top of you, King. Now, let's get your reaction exactly what Mankind had to say. How about the Emperor has... you think you're on a roll, don't you, Pet and Gil? Give me that microphone. I'm not answering anything for you. Do you get paid for this, you moronic idiot? I don't need you, and I don't need any of these morons here at Providence, Rhode Island. All I need to do is make my way down to this ring right now and take care of a little business. I'm here to show you, idiots, you peons, what a king really is. I want all of you peons to bow down and kiss my royal feet. Do you understand me? Take a look at these idiots. Hey, look at her. Take a look at her right now. I'm surprised to see you. What's a massage parlor closed today, huh? My goodness. Look at these idiots. Oh, boy. Look at this guy. Look at this guy right here. Hey, does your parole officer know you're out this late? Oh, mankind. Mankind. Mrs. Foley's little boy. There it sits right there. Well, we've had to listen, thanks to that bulbous Jim Ross. We've had to listen to all of your history. You're talking about the history of kings. Well, we've heard about your history, mankind. And we've all decided that we hate the fact that your parents even ever met. Do you understand me? You ugly freak of nature. Or can you even hear me with that half a ear you got? Let me tell you something, man. Oh, hey, don't get froggy. If you feel froggy, you just jump on a real king. Let me tell you something right now. You want to know something about his childhood? I'll tell you about his childhood. You know, when he was born, his mother... 
And she said, my God, Siamese twins. <laughs> Let me tell you something. He's the, you better be happy, McMahon, that mankind is here. You better hope nothing ever happens to him. Because if he dies, then you're going to be the ugliest man on earth. But I'm fixing to do this right now. If it's possible, I'm going to make him even uglier than he already is. Vince throws to Todd Pettengill, who is with Jerry the King Lawler. We see Lawler advancing over Goldust and getting walked over by Marlena. Lawler grabs Todd's mic and begins his entrance. Here we go. Mm. No one likes Todd on this paper. Everyone's always shutting him up and nicking his mic. And tossing him out of the ring and yeah. just getting rid of him, yeah. <laughs> Lawler does his usual pre-match routine of insulting those in the aisleway, telling one woman she's there because the massage parlour was closed. I've got to say, I thought that this was not his A-game Really? Yeah, I thought... I thought it was good. I, I No, I don't think this is him at his best. I don't think he was as sharp. I think he was struggling. It's like he went across to one person, thought he's going to say something here, and he just clearly couldn't... It didn't come to him quick enough. Well, he then takes aim at Mankind and that bulbous Jim Ross, saying that when Mankind was born, his mother took one look at his rear end of his face and said, my God, Siamese twins. <laughs> See, that was good. Come on, that's yeah. good. No... Lawler stops off to dig at Vince, saying that if Mankind dies, Vince will be the ugliest man on earth. No? No. Still nothing? I quite like this. Mankind slides out of the ring to attack the king, ramming his head into the announce table and ripping at Lawler's face. Lawler sucks chance from the crowd as the match makes its way to the ring. Yeah, I think you actually missed out is one good one that, that I quite liked. Can you even hear me with your half an ear you've got? Yes, he does say that, yeah. I think that's my, my favourite one out of what he says. Mankind punches Lawler in the corner and hits a back elbow. Mankind signals for the mandible claw and Lawler bails from the ring. JR tells us about Lawler being discovered by Lance Russell while being a radio DJ and being trained by Jackie Fargo. Yeah, I think this is weird because they spend quite a lot of time putting Lawler over as a serious competitor on on this bit of commentary, which I thought seemed a bit odd considering how his character's going with this at the minute. I guess they have to kind of legitimise him being in In the the semi-finals of the tournament, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and apparently he has a PhD in cheating, which is presumably offered by the same university that offers a doctorate in thugonomics. <laughs> <laughs> Lawler wants Mankind to back off before re-entering the ring, and while the referee forces Mankind to do that, Lawler grabs something from his tights and clocks Mankind with it. We never see what it is, though. I presume brass nooks. I'm not sure if there even is anything. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think there's anything. He just, he just fishes around in his crotch area and pulls something out. <laughs> well, there is a bit of commentary that describes Lawler's going deep into his tights. <laughs> having a rummage yeah but he does it like it goes right down there <laughs> Lawler hits a bulldog and throws Mankind to the outside to more Lawler sucks chance Lawler's tactic seems to be winning via count out as he keeps Mankind outside the ring it's quite Weasley yeah not the worst plan again the crowd's very good isn't it and the, the crowd were fairly heated anyway at the start of this pay-per-view but I think Lawler's insults have gone a good way into making them really hate him I was quite looking forward to this much actually yeah well, you got to say, Mankind's consistently good. Lawler's usually been entertaining, although we've not really seen that much in quality in-ring work. No. But I was looking forward to this. Burger King chants as Lawler kicks away at Mankind from the apron. Lawler uses whatever was in his tights one more time with the referee distracted. Lawler lays Mankind on the apron and bites at his face and ear. That, that can't be pleasant to mm. sort of bite someone's half ear. Yeah, I guess not. No. With both men back in the ring, Lawler punches away at Mankind with his foreign object. Mankind manages to throw Lawler to the outside and rams the king into the steel barricades either side of the aisleway. 
Mankind sets Lawler up on the steps and charges towards the king, but Lawler moves and Mankind goes head first into the steps, with JR suggesting that Mankind may have suffered a neck injury from that move. Well, he takes his spot on his head, doesn't he? It, I've never seen that before. I, I was fully expecting um, to wince from a big knee. Knees. And, and I was wincing from a big head instead. That, well, that's what he starts doing, and that's the thing that really distincts, if I, if I remember him right, Foley's and latterly the Undertaker's running into the steps is they always take it on the knee, whilst everyone else tends to go shoulder, back, yeah. you know, yeah. fall down. Like, There's the safer way of taking it. What in the name of God was he thinking? I, I, I don't want to do shoulder or that. I'll do it with my head. But it's like, what, yeah, what attack was he going for? <laughs> in the first, but it's, it's just bewildering, because did he intend to, like, go with his shoulder or back and just then run, like, mistime it? And just... Well, whatever, it must have bloody hurt yeah. anyway. They weigh, weigh well over 300 pounds, those steps. So. Lawler doesn't help the situation by snapping mankind backwards, headfirst, into the steel twice. Yeah, yeah, that's Ouch. also nasty. On the outside, Lawler hits his pile drive and returns to the ring telling the referee to count and joining in as he does. Oh, I, I, Lawler distinctly counts faster than the referee. <laughs> well, he has a PhD in cheating. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, furthering the count of the referee would, would, would do that. And basic counting, yeah. Mankind returns to the ring, however, but Lawler drop kicks him off, which gets a reaction. Jar says mark it down, as you won't see too many drop kicks from the king. It was quite a nice drop kick, actually. Yeah, it wasn't the worst one I've ever yeah, seen. For, for a guy that's not really an active performer at this point and is in latter ages of active performance, I guess. Mankind gets back in the ring and Lawler hits another pile driver. He covers, but only gets two. It's a bit lax. But, like, you've done two pile drivers now. We've only got two counts. I know it's a semi-final match, but it's the second match on the card. Feels a little bit much. Have we ever seen, in in our time of watching, Lawler put out, like, beat anyone with his pile driver? Not that I can recall off the top of my head, but th- there will be various jobbers he will have been yeah. on, like, superstars and stuff with it. He whacked Aldo Montoya in the face on that microphone that time. Yeah, that was good. Mm. Lawler once again peruses the contents of his tights, hitting Mankind in the face. JR seems pleased he doesn't have to refer to this as an international object taking a dig at WCW. Mankind fights back and clocks Lawler in the face. Mankind hits a leg drop as JR references Mankind's scars on his arm and matches in barbed wire. He gives a bang-bang taunt for a pop. Mankind hits a back-body drop and we get... Something out of the corner, which ends with a sort of DDT from Lawler. That that I've described as a weird bit of miscommunication. <laughs> Lawler hits a fist drop from the second rope and sets up for another pile driver, but Mankind flips him over. Lawler looks for a sunset flip, but Mankind applies the mandible claw to a pop, getting the victory and soothing piano music at 10.24. I love that music. Really big pop for the mandible claw. That That move has been put over in the right sort of way, so it's seen as you know a, a real top finisher, a match ender. Really good. There's been another good bit of commentary from JR saying that Mankind has a hard time wearing shades. As a match, I thought it was all right. Yeah. I think, you know, I quite like, I know you didn't, Paul, but I quite like Lawler's stuff at the start to wind the crowd up. I, I quite like, he's got a very distinct style, hasn't he, Lawler? It is very theatric. And stalling. Everything that he does, but it's, I find it quite enjoyable to watch. His, his, his pantomime villain act, that's what he's always doing. And th- there was there was some slightly ropey moves in it, but I, th- I thought this match was okay. It didn't it didn't make me think that this was an amazing match, but I, th- I thought it was kind of on a, on a level. I didn't massively enjoy it. I don't normally mind a collection of spots in a match as long as the, the, the spots are okay. This had a couple of spots that I thought were quite good. 
but the match was just so stilted it felt in between and I don't quite know why so mm. so I felt a little it wasn't horrible but not great yeah I thought it was about as slow paced as the opener really while Lawless tactics were amusing and his pre-match promo was gold the fact he's wrestling a 10 minute match on a major pay-per-view shows the lack of depth that WWF has right now mm. while JR as usual tried to get Mankind over that he can take a ton of punishment Lawless attack I didn't think it was particularly venomous enough to make it feel like Mankind has come back from some heinous mm. assault to get the victory also yeah there was no payoff to whatever Lawler had in his tights either the referee catching him or Mankind using it against him Unless I missed something. I, I don't know if I did. Maybe they, maybe they planned the spot, but Lawler forgot to put anything in his tights. Yeah, or maybe the thing was that there was never supposed to be anything in there anyway. Well, yeah. I thought at one stage they were going out of the ring, and I think Lawler was supposed to be putting these objects or the, the object back in his tights. And it looked like, I don't know if it was McFarley just kind of grabbing at him, or if it looked like he was trying to grab something from its tights, but it never played out. That could be one of the perhaps more disturbing audience challenges we can do. You know, what was in Lawless tights? Wow. I don't think anything good no, can come of that, no. so I'll probably give that one a miss. <laughs> we can't read out any of those suggestions, so please don't send just, them Just a 20-minute beep. <laughs> Vince, thank you. I guess, Brian, the first question is whether or not you feel somewhat responsible for the matchup we're going to see here tonight between Stone Cold Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels. Responsible? Hell yes! I reeled that sucker right in. But it was Brett who inspired me when he whispered in my ear. <laughs> well, then why are you here tonight? I'm here to give my support for the family. And I'm here to watch that boy toy violate that rat's ass so I can see what's going to be left for me tomorrow night. It's been a long time, Steve. But I was told, seek and ye shall fight. Oh, no, look at this. There comes Steve Austin sticking it behind Brian Pillman. Todd Pettengill is backstage with Brian Pillman, who has crazy, crazy eyes, and an Austin 316 t-shirt that has the numbers crossed out and replaced with the date of the following night's Raw. Right. I was a bit worried by this section. Why? Go on then. Well, I I did think Steve Austin's kind of creeping up behind Pillman was absolutely brilliant. Yes. But during the subsequent attack, when they go into the bathroom, the fact that they've clearly got a camera set up already in the toilet overlooking the bowl <laughs> is somewhat frightening. Maybe that's just the way they do things there. It might be, but like, oh, I don't know. It's a little bit of suspension of disbelief, isn't it, that there would be a camera above the toilet. Yeah. Because it's, and adequate lighting. Yes. It's, it's the whole thing. Like if it's if it's the showing like a cameraman, you know, following them in and going behind them, like that's fair enough. Where it's clearly like one of those small cameras that they've had installed just to overlook the bowl. Yeah. That's too too much. Todd asks Brian if he feels responsible for the Austin Michaels match tonight, and Pillman says damn right he does. He reeled those suckers in, but it was Brett who inspired him. As Pillman continues to talk, unbeknownst to him, Steve Austin appears over his shoulder, pulling some excellent faces. Some great faces. Austin stalks Pillman before decking him from behind and ramming Pillman's head into a nearby toilet, which, yes, has a rather useful camera positioned above it. It gets a pop from the crowd, and Austin stomps off, telling Pillman he's always sucked and always will. 
I was at two minds with this because I thought that it was really good, but I kind of wanted Pillman to finish off his promo because I thought that, that was shaping up to be really amazing. His his face acting is five stars. He has the maddest fucking eyes in the world. Who pulls the best faces in this interview then, Austin or Pillman? Austin. I'd say the, they're very different. I, I, I'd, put, I'd put them both on a par. Okay. As the segment ends, we get a shot of the Slammy Award winner for the category Most Words on a Single Sign. It reads... Bret Hart might think he is the excellence of execution, but the fact is Steve Austin is the excellence of whipping your ass, and that's the bottom line. <laughs> yeah, Succinct, it's, well done. It's very, it's very wordy. That's right up there with what became of Kane and the Undertaker's ability to summon lightning at will. <laughs> <laughs> and So just to kind of go back a little bit to the promo, it reminded me of the episode of Frasier called Seat of Power, which has got Dr. Cox in it from Scrubs. Okay. Is it McGinley? John C. McGinley. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? No, but go on. Where he's... Oh, he's a repairman, isn't he? He's a plumber. He's, yeah, he's, yeah. he's the plumber. And, and he, he bullied Frasier, he, didn't he? He, yeah. he bullied Niles. Niles. Right. And then the kind of the older brother bullied Frasier. So they're talking about Niles keeps just about going to flush his head down, but Frasier stops him and then Frasier does it to the older brother later on. Brilliant. One of my favourite episodes of Frasier, by the way. Go and check it out. Seat of Power. I think every time you talk about a Frasier episode, you always go, that's one of my favourite episodes of Frasier. There's, there's about ten series of my favourite episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Up next is Goldust versus Crush. There is absolutely no reason why this match should ever be happening. Can we skip it then? The Nation of Domination theme hits to bring out Crush, accompanied by the remaining NOD goons, including Clarence Mason, D'Lo Brown, and an even fatter version of D'Lo Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Who is that guy? I don't know. Just just a rather fatter-looking version of D'Lo Brown. Later on, he, he could have done a version of himself called CeeLo Brown. He could have. In which case, he could have sung CeeLo's music on his way to the ring. CeeLo Green and CeeLo Brown. Yeah. What, what, what do Green and Brown make if they're mixed? Brown. brown. Just brown. Green, yeah. Greenish brown. Yeah. They get pretty much no reaction as they walk to the ring, except from me when JR references Crush being formerly a member of Demolition. Yeah, which was which was a bit weird. Yeah. Oh, and apparently the tattoo on his head is something to do with a Hawaiian declaration of war. I thought it was something to do with a Bic Biro. Hmm, possibly. Goldust and Marlena are out next to a small pop, and Marlena slaps the hands of the fans smiling, which just feels weird. Is, is this because they've had those interviews as well, so there's supposed to be an extra depth to the character? Yeah. But as I think I said like last time, you've kind of taken away what was... A, unique and interesting about that character in the first place. Yeah. Not the best move. I like his face paint, though. Yeah, I think he and her both look quite cool, and the entrance looks amazing. Yeah, I, I just don't see her as sort of a smiley, hand-slappy type character. No, she was much better as the kind of the mysterious, Stoic. silent... Yeah. Yeah, that that worked, and the, the ultra-face sort of, yeah, smiley, hand-slappy... Yeah. Just not her, is it? Not really, no. But, it, but it's, it's difficult, though, because she's always got a really good reaction. Well, yeah. <laughs> not not just from you, yeah. But no, she has. I mean, like often in, in their matches, I say their matches, in Golda's matches, she's the one getting cheered. But is that not a pattern with, say, Mero and Sable and Helmsley and China? Like the reactions a lot of the time are coming for their women. Possibly, yeah. I hadn't really thought about it as closely, but you're right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end of that debate. Yes, it is. Yeah. Marlena helps Goldust disrobe and leaves the ring. The crowd is definitely up for anything, as it's the biggest face pop we've heard for Goldust ever, although it's not particularly big. And also, yeah, the hats off to this crowd, because it's a Crush match. Crush attacks Goldust from behind and throws him out of the ring. Goldust fights back on the outside and rams Crush's head into the steel steps. 
back in the ring, Goldus punches Crush and sets the NOD member up in the corner for more punches and sexual assault, which the crowd chants along with. Did this one go a little bit further than his normal ones? Because he grabs Crush's hand and makes Crush caress his breast and abdomen. Yes. It's a bit weird. Also, there's a sign that says Fatty357 in the crowd. (laughs) Yeah, I saw that one. I wasn't sure what it meant. (laughs) Occasionally, in my notes, I've written down where my DVD player, or not my my, um, network, skipped on the PlayStation. This was one of those cases, so I missed that. You missed the because I tried to go back graceful behaviour. Yeah, I tried to go back and catch most things, but that must have been one of the bits that I missed. Hooray! Yeah. Goldus hits a clothesline and covers for a two. He hits a poor swinging neckbreaker for another as Marlena watches on. Crush reverses an Irish whip and Goldus takes a hard bump in the corner. Crush hits a belly to belly suplex to no reaction and kicks away at Goldust. JR references the dissension in the Nation of Domination since Farouk was named number one contender. Crush hits Goldust in his kidneys and proceeds with one of his usual boring heat segments. He gets mild booze for raising his fist. Goldust fights back with uppercuts and looks for a scoop slam, but Crush lands on him for a two. Yeah, I thought that was a bit weird that he couldn't get Crush up for it. I think he's trying to sell that his kidneys hurt. I think that's a bit much. (laughs) Crush hits a backbreaker (laughs) for a two and sits on the back of the bizarre one, which looks more uncomfortable than painful. Is this where he does it the opposite way from the hard camera? Yes. It's kind of like a really, really shit camel clutch. Well, that's what I thought it was supposed to be, but... Yeah. But he's not got the arms, but he's sitting on his back and... Sort of touching like, his chin. Touching his chin. Did you see the Farouk sign behind this bit? Yes. It just says, kill Farouk? Yes. <laughs> I thought that's just, like... It's a bit harsh. Yeah, the, the, the sign square is, okay, having a go to, to heal or something that you don't like, fine. Just saying kill someone is just nasty. <laughs> <laughs> like, there, there is no good excuse for that. That it, at worst, it should be a water pistol to make it look like he's wet himself. <laughs> and only then if he's upset me in the queue at Sainsbury's. Vince and JR talk about the King of the Ring dating back to 1986 because nothing much else is going on in this bout. I legitimately wonder if Goldust has gone to sleep as he just seems to be laying on the mat as Crush <laughs> wanders round and occasionally grabs at his chin. Like, that's about three minutes of this match. Yeah, it lasts for ages. JR tells us that Gorilla Monsoon is ill and watching from home. Vince chiming in that he is by the phone in case we need an executive decision. Also, he's probably flicking channels while this match is on. <laughs> he's actually watching WCW. <laughs> I might be wrong in saying this, but I'm sure that Vince says that he's, he must be watching on pay-per-view as all of us are. Well, you're not, Vince. <laughs> That's what I thought. I'm sure he says that. It sounds like the sort of thing that Vince might say. Mild gold does chants from the crowd and gold does pounds the mat to try and get the crowd into it. Crush lungs to jump on Goldust's back once more, but Goldust turns over and knees him in the balls. That gets a good Vince laugh. Crush follows this, though, with a big gorilla press into a gut buster, which gets a two and does look painful. Yeah, I thought the, the, the press was good. The, the stomach crusher looked a bit ropey. But, but he backs it up with another rest hold. Crush hits a back <laughs> elbow and, yes, yeah, applies the Vulcan nerve grip because this match definitely needed some more downtime. Goldust hits his drop-down punch in a clothesline, followed by Dusty Rhodes-esque punches, which gets a Vince, I know that's right. <laughs> on the outside, Clarence Mason and D'Lo Brown surround Marlena. Goldust hits a terrible bulldog and notices what's going on. He stalks D'Lo from behind, while two people in the crowd shout, Goldust, behind you, behind you, really loudly. It's brilliant. There's a, there is like a little kid there in the front row but it sounds like a kid and just a woman but it's just like such panto like they really don't understand but that like that innocence is beautiful i think i love it but gold just chooses to ignore them and crush indeed attacks him from behind yeah, it best is regretting it 
think there's like a timing problem in here because we get, I think they've got the timing mixed up. We get the shot of Clarence and Delo being ever so slightly stalkery with, with Marlena and they're saying something to her and I wish that we had a camera to hear what they were saying because Clarence Mason's like, mouth is going on and on and on. But it's so long before Goldust comes round. Mm. It's, it, it felt like it's probably only about 30 seconds, but it's 30 seconds I too long. I don't think it's that long. It, it just felt like ages they're just standing there talking at her before Goldust can get his ass out of the ring. I, I think it probably looked worse than it was. You're right, it wasn't sharpish in getting there, but it, there, there weren't... I think the idea was that it was supposed to be slow and menacing, not a, a, just a sh- shark attack. A shark attack. I, I didn't know what to say there, so I said shark attack. <laughs> John Tento, okay, man. Oh, yeah. Back in the ring, Goldust hits a DDT and gets the three count at 9.56. The end. Kissing. Well, yes, Marlena enters the ring and Shin Goldust kiss, pecking each other like that really annoying couple we all know. You and Adam. Yes, me and Adam. <laughs> But she gets like because he's got a significant amount of like black face paint on like, her chin. She, she, she looks like she's just been like licking a lump of coal or something. <laughs> I'm not sure this will get them over if I'm honest either. Like, no, pecking uh, at each other looks weird. Yeah, yeah. babyface gold dust is boring and crush is boring. So this was boring. I thought this was clunky with dull rest spots and pretty shit really. It wasn't good. I mean, it lived up to my expectations, but my expectations were really quite low. <laughs> <laughs> Your expectation was that it would be bad? No, like, it could have been worse. It wasn't like, I wouldn't say it's absolutely all out appalling, the worst wrestling match I've seen, but it was pretty basic and it was pretty slow. It really was that, that's a lot better, isn't it, to say, well, well, this is going to be bad and then it is bad rather than those other ones that we've seen where it looks like it should be really good and isn't. Well, it's like that Regal Finley match where it's like, this is going to be amazing, and it was a bit of a letdown. But would you rather have that, though, like a match that looks good on paper and then under-delivers, or you look at a card and see Goldust versus Crush and go, that'll be shit, and then it is. <laughs> no, I'd rather have that because, there's a, you know, on the, the off chance it's good, that you know, you've raised your expectations. <laughs> Whereas at the very best... Some like a, a match that you're looking forward to is just going to meet expectations. What you're saying is a pessimist is never disappointed. I know it's a really rubbish way to look at the world, but that's how I'm choosing to do it. <laughs> if, if, if reviewing the new generation has taught me anything, it's to have low expectations. <laughs> Remember that term lack of depth we used earlier? These two having a singles pay-per-view match in 1997 is the very definition of that term. And with no build and no reason. Yeah, it almost feels like kind of with what they've got scheduled, it's almost like they had too much planned to stage the quarterfinals on the show as well as the semis and the finals, but not enough time to fill removing the four quarterfinals. Mm. So they're in this sort of awkward between where well, we haven't really got enough time for those four matches, but if we take away those four matches, we We've haven't got f- really enough to fill it. Yeah. I mean, they, they would be disappointing in your house matches. Yes. You know, like the, the two, the first couple of matches that, you know, might be okay, but probably won't be. Yeah, this yeah a rather boring and pointless match, which presumably only exists to get Goldust on the show, as I can't really see why you'd be clamouring to get Crush on pay-per-view in 1997. All right, thanks. Thanks a lot, guys. You know, tonight your opponents, the Hart Foundation, are a very close-knit unit, and the best I know, this is the first time ever the three of you have ever been in a tag team together, but I would imagine there's a lot of revenge factor for the Hart Foundation as far as the Legion of Doom is concerned. Well... Revenge is a dish best served cold. And by diddly do squat, we're serving the coldest dish in town. You know, you talk about a tight knit unit. 
Every fan in the World Wrestling Federation knows there's not a tighter tag team than the Legion of Doom, the Road Warriors. The one you gotta worry about is you. Are you gonna be there for a tag? Listen, you don't worry about me because when it comes to me, brother, I am the man and the ruler of the world. And I don't have to worry about the Hart Foundation. Because tonight, I think we all can agree on one thing. Tonight is going to be the worst night for the Heart Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's go to my twin brother from another mother, Todd Pettengill, standing by with the Heart Foundation. Thank you very much. Obviously, LOD, Psycho Sid looking for a little revenge. And this time, Bulldog, Psycho Sid is in their corner. You know what? We beat Legion of Doom, Fur and Square, and in your house in April. And tonight... There's no reason why history shouldn't repeat itself right here at the King of the Ring. That's right, Bulldog. Here, hold this, Pettengill. Hold it up high. Show all the people. Sure. Now, LOD, you walk out there with the pretty makeup on your faces and your funky little Halloween costume. That doesn't cut it here at the Heart Foundation because we are family. It takes a hell of a lot more than makeup on your faces to beat us. And you got Psycho sitting in your corner. You can't trust each other. How can you even trust him? Right, Anvil? You know, and speaking about Psycho Sid, if you think you're crazy, big man, you haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> Doc Hendricks is stood by with the Legion of Doom and Psycho Sid. This should be shouty. It is. By diddly-do-squat. What <laughs> <laughs> my, my yeah. new favourite thing. Hawk is strange, isn't he? He says yes. weird things in his promos. I don't remember this as a kid, because I remember watching Road Warriors or Legion of Doom promos on the WWF. Yeah. And I remember liking them, but I don't quite remember Hawk saying such bizarre stuff. Yeah, I think he was always coming out with bizarre things. As, as a kid, it must have, I must have just like just gone with it. And as an adult, you watch about said, that's a weird thing to say. I've got to ask, did you guys concentrate on something in this promo that I may have concentrated on. Well, tell us what it is and we'll tell you if we did. Sit mouthing along to the words of the LOD. No. Did you not see that? <laughs> no. Oh, my God. Like, it didn't do it the whole time, but it did it to start off with then just before he started spoke. And, and for, like, good portions of it, it's almost like they're being auto-cued. Right. And he was... You could visibly see him mouthing along the words <laughs> with them. Well, he, he's waiting for his cue, isn't he? But, oh, my, oh my word. I mean, that that's something. If you watch it back... Well, you watch it back... <laughs> The gist is that there's questions as to whether the LOD can trust Sid. Sid does some shouting, and I'm not sure he exactly addresses that issue. He doesn't at all. But but he does say something about the Heart Foundation. I've put this down as five-star shouty bullshit. I really enjoyed it, but I didn't really get it. What would you call the team of Legion of Doom and Sid? Well, well we actually discussed this, yes. whether it should be the Legion of Sid or Sid of Doom. I was just going to call them Solid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of disappointed that we don't get Sid in LOD gear coming out yeah. like we did with Ahmed, because <laughs> that would have been, been awesome. Yeah, they, they could have just started recruiting members and had a massive Legion of Doom with people like Ahmed and Sid, and then that, then the actual Legion of Doom. That would have been awesome. Who would look the silliest in LOD gear? Gold dust. <laughs> yeah, like gold LOD <laughs> gear though. That would be amazing. Vader, mini Vader. Vader. <laughs> no, Vader would look quite good actually. Paul Bearer. <laughs> <laughs> I win. <laughs> Todd Pettingill. <laughs> Todd is with Owen Hart, Davy Boy Smith, and Jim Neidhart, and Bulldog cuts his usual five star promo. Fur and squirr. Fur and squirr. <laughs> I love the British Bulldog. I thought this was quite a, a 
average promo from those guys. Yeah. Didn't set the world on fire, did it? Well, Owen forces Pettengill to hold his slammy up to the camera, which I did like. Yeah. And the anvil shouts just as much as LOD and Sid did, basically. Something along the lines of, I'm really crazy. Ha 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 ha. Yeah, he thinks he knows crazy. He's not seen anything yet, kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) He's probably right. Up next is Psycho Sid and the Legion of Doom against Owen Hart, the British Bulldog, and Jim the Anvil Neidhart in a six-man tag team match. The initial plan for this bout seemed to have been a further chapter in the tag team title feud between the Legion of Doom and Owen Hart and David Boy Smith, with Hawk and Animal conducting an interview on the May 24th Shotgun Saturday night discussing their pending title challenge. But with Owen and Davey losing the straps to Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels on the May 26th Roy's War, that proposed bout would be scratched. On the go-home June 2nd Raw, this six-man tag team bout would be announced following Sid's surprise return to television, which we'll discuss in further detail when we get to the main event. Pleased to see him back. Yes. Yes, very much so. I've missed Sid. I was a bit shocked when he when he popped up. The Heart Foundation trio enter to Brett's music. They all have snazzy hitman jackets with their names on the back, and, and Davies cut the arms off of his, presumably because his arms are massive. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't fit them in the sleeves. I liked that, because I like those jackets, but something that's better is one of those that says Owen on it, I think. Vince tells us that Brett has said he will colour commentate during the Austin Michaels matchup later tonight. The Legion of Doom enter to a decent but not particularly huge pop. Sid, however, gets a pretty big one when he enters. Yeah, people still love Sid. Someone has a sign that says, Sid, I missed you, which is quite sweet. <laughs> yeah. Sid orchestrates the crowd as he wanders down the aisle screaming, I love it, into the camera and bumping the fists of fans. His pyro goes off to another pretty big reaction. JR randomly tells us that apparently the late Texas tornado Kerry Von Erich considered Sid the toughest man he ever faced. If you listen very carefully at the start of this match, you can hear Davy Boy Smith mouthing off at the crowd. It's not exactly clear what he says, but the word fucking is definitely in there. <laughs> yeah, I sort of replayed that for you, didn't I? Yeah, you said, he definitely said fucking there. This is the only word you can make out of what he says, though. He's just giving the crowd shit, I guess. He's quite good at that, isn't he? Yeah, like, I'm really gaining a whole new respect for the British Bulldog as we watch back through this timeline. I always liked him as, you know... He's, you know, he was British and he was the big powerhouse and things. But I think his mic work I find really, well, he is bizarre. He is bizarre. Uh, but I mean, his mic work I find hilarious and his riling of the crowd is just amazing. I think my favourite Bulldog-ism was when he talked about not giving a frog's fat ass, <laughs> which I've not heard anyone else say ever. I think this is why it was good when he had Cornet talking for him. Animal and Owen start with Owen trying for a side headlock, but Animal throws him off. Halfway across the ring? He's a powerful man. He is, isn't he? Another, and Owen gets bounced off and runs off the ropes into a power slam. Animal misses an elbow drop, and we get our hat trick of messy mid-ring exchanges as Owen leaps over Animal and nothing happens. The crowd chant for Sid as Animal hits a flapjack, a slingshot into fists from Sid and Hawk, and a power slam for a two. The anvil helps on the kickout. Animal tags Sid to a pop, and Sid hits an axe handle from the second rope to a pop. Right, I'm I'm glad to see Sid. Do you not think he looks a bit too smiley and happy in this match? Well, he he loves it, and he's he's happy to be back. Yeah, he's pleased to be back. Uh, He just doesn't seem like it fits in with the Legion of Doom. Smiley, happy Sid. Yeah. But he's a psychopath, you see, so... Sometimes he'll be happy for no reason. His moods are very variable. Fair enough, let's move on. Owen walks into a Sid shoulder block, and Sid demands a test of strength, but Owen chooses to tag the bulldog, which is probably a good move. Yeah. Davy eggs on the crowd to boo him and cheer for Sid. Davy wants the test of strength, but kicks Sid in the gut instead. 
Davy lifts Sid up for an impressive stalling vertical suplex, but Sid no-sells it and gets up to punch Owen and Neidhart to a big pop. Sid takes Davy down as well and tags Hawk, while Davy tags the anvil. Hawk and Neidhart lock up before the two both no-sell clothesline attempts mid-ring. They just sort of collide into each other mm. with clotheslines, and neither of them budges. Fair news, isn't it, really? <laughs> Hawk gets his boot sort of up on a charge in the corner, and Hawk gets a two from a clothesline from the second rope. Animal tags in, and the crowd chant loudly for Psycho Sid, who obliges by briefly kicking at Neidhart. <laughs> Hawk comes in and applies a chin lock, but the anvil is having none of it and powers out. Hawk hits a drop kick, and Neidhart tags Bulldog. Davy hits a pile driver, and Hawk no-sells it, hitting a clothesline to the Bulldog for a two. Yeah, well, you shouldn't no sell a pile driver. Well, people just shouldn't Hawk. pile drive Hawk because he never sells them. Yeah, it's just Hawk, isn't it, that does that, the, the instant stand up. Hawk tags Animal and Bulldog tags Owen. Owen hits a spinning wheel kick, and while the referee deals with Sid and Hawk, the Anvil assaults Animal with a steel chair and an Irish whip into the steel steps on the outside. In the ring, Owen hits a suplex for a two to Animal. He follows this by slingshotting Nardhart over the ropes, nailing a shoulder block, which gets another two for the anvil. That was good. That was, that was quite a clever little move, I thought. Animal gets a sunset flip to Nardhart, but Davy Boy distracts the referee and no count is made. Owen gets in and hits a beautiful missile dropkick off the top rope for a two. Is that the one where Anvil's holding one of the opponents, but he actually makes sure that he moves out of the way as Owen is coming down and thought, at least that's going to avoid the one thing that they didn't want to happen? <laughs> yes. Because it's so, so often you see people go into the effort to do that, but it just makes I think that's a little bit of basic tag wrestling psychology. Owen taunts Hawk, which allows the Hart trio more time to attack Animal behind the referee's back. Owen brings the bulldog in and the two double clothesline Animal. Davy hits a scoop slam but gets caught into a slam by Animal off the second rope. Animal heads to the top, but Bulldog catches him and nails a suplex for a two. You see, I have to, I have to question the like the intelligence of animals take on this in that he's been getting battered for ages and he finally gets a bit of respite in order to make a tag but instead of doing that goes really risky maneuver at the top and yeah. just gets beaten again. probably not the best idea nah, not not smart animal davy tags nardhart who applies a chin lock to animal jar suggests that the lod's only detriment may be their stamina animal powers out and elbows nardhart in his ample gut but nardhart <laughs> gets a knee to animal's stomach owen tags in and anvil whips him into animal in the corner Owen hits a neckbreaker for a two count as Sid reaches for a tag when Owen applies a side headlock to Animal. Well, well there was some nice bits there. I thought that kind of assisted spear by Owen into the corner was, was a nice yeah. move. And um, the kind of tag during the submission, kind of the, the teased it and then they did it. I thought that was quite a nice little section. Owen applies a sleeper hold riding on the back of Animal, taking the big man to his knees. Animal, however, gets to his feet and tags Hawk to pretty much no reaction. Yeah, yeah, the crowd don't wake up for the Hawk tag. It's, it's just the waiting for Sid. Well, I, I think it's a combination of that and this heat segment on Animal has gone on forever to the mm, point where yeah. they're kind of past caring by the time he makes it. And also, do you think this is the card beginning to play out in terms of the action hasn't been at the standard that it should have been? Possibly. Yeah, I mean, that Goldust Crush match, bar Sid's entrance, has pretty much killed everything. Yeah. Hawk hits a scoop slam, but misses something from the top rope. Bulldog comes in and slams Hawk before missing a leg drop. The Hearts make more quick tags to try and double-team Hawk, but Hawk runs through a double clothesline attempt by Owen and Neidhart to hit one of his own. Well, I think this is the section where they, they noticeably start to quicken the pace and actually things do pick up from here. Hawk tags Sid to a big pop, who absolutely leathers Owen with a clothesline mm-hmm. and a big boot. Mega clothesline. 
the match breaks down and Sid hits a big chokeslam to Bulldog before looking for a powerbomb, but legal man Owen Hart dives off the top rope and catches Sid with a sunset flip for the three count at 13.37. The LOD attempt to attack Nard Hart post-match, but the Hart trio bail and leave the scene as Owen's theme plays. It's a bit messy at the end, but that was better than what we'd had earlier on. I felt I'd rather have this kind of this messy but entertaining stuff leaves a bit of a question mark over the match as a whole, but I wasn't bored by it. Yeah, I, th- I thought I thought this is all right. This is the best thing that we've seen so far. This is the best of the matches for me, I yeah. think, or the most, you know, certainly the most enjoyable to watch. But it still falls below par of what I would have expected from seeing this on paper. And it actually really surprises me that Sid takes the fall. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. On that, that just seems really weird because Sid's had a pretty high rise place in the company and now he's taking the fall in a multi-tag match. And it's Owen that got the pin. And it's... Not the Bulldog. I expect it's Bulldog. If yeah, and it's to, a, like, it's to a sunset flip or something. It's not... Yeah, I just thought, thought that was a bit odd. The, the, I thought the end, although this match wasn't short, the end came too quickly for when the match picked up. Right. The match was just starting to get good, in my opinion, and then it ended pretty abruptly. Yeah, I thought this match had its moments, but the heat segment on Animal was so long it killed any kind of pop for his tag to hawk. Sid was by far the most over person in the match, but spent the least amount of time in the ring out of anyone, apart from right at the beginning and kind of at the end to take the pin. Mm. What do you think he was taking the pin? It just represents kind of his sliding scale down the card, really, I think. I guess. Saving grace, so we got Owen's music. Yes, true. Not the worst match you'll ever see, really, but by no means recommended viewing, I don't yeah, think. Yes, so it's not worth seeking out. To quote Andrea Bocelli and Sarah Brightman, boys, it's time to say goodbye. Is it? For tonight is indeed the final WWF pay-per-view appearance of the master and the ruler of the world oh. and two-time WWF champion, Psycho Sid. Seriously? We'll never see him again. Sid would wrestle his final television match the night after this on June 9th, defeating Intercontinental Champion Owen Hart in a non-title match with a chokeslam, presumably getting revenge for the pinfall he ate tonight. On the afternoon of the 15th of June, Sid would be involved in a car accident, in a vehicle which also contained Flash Funk, Doug Furness and Philip Lafon. The accident, which hospitalised all four men, occurred as a result of Sid, who was driving at allegedly 100 miles an hour, checking the sunroof, causing the car to go out of control, hit the shoulder of the road and roll four times. Whoa, they were lucky then not to be dead. Yeah. The car would be a total write-off, with the initial fear being that Sid had suffered the most severe injuries. However, it would be Furnace that came off the worst, suffering a separated and broken shoulder and a broken back. Oh. Sid would be penciled in for two different spots on the following month's In Your House pay-per-view, as well as a bout at SummerSlam in August, but wouldn't participate in any of the planned matches. Sid would make a brief return to television as part of an angle with the Hart Foundation on the July 14th Rory's War, but would quietly disappear again, this time for good. The story seems to be that backstage Sid had some sort of anxiety attack, and when the WWF seemingly couldn't get a straight answer from him as to when he would return, he was fired in early August. Sid would threaten to sue the WWF for firing him while injured, but ultimately nothing would come from it. With a less than stellar track record in the industry, Sid would disappear from the mainstream wrestling scene for the rest of 1997 and all of 1998 before reappearing in, of all places, ECW in early 1999. It's strange that he was ever there. Sid would make one pay-per-view appearance in Philadelphia, defeating John Cronus with a powerbomb in a little over a minute at Guilty as Charged on January the 10th. 
Sid would show up sporadically in the next couple of months before making a return after nearly six years to WCW at the Great American Bash on June 13th, brought back at the behest of his friends Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. Given the rather odd nickname of the Millennium Man, Sid would amass a totally fabricated winning streak designed to build him for a match with Goldberg, with Goldberg decisively beating Sid at both Halloween Havoc and Mayhem later in the year. You'd have a whale of a time with that, Paul, with WrestleMaths. But, but yeah, it's good, like, like just ridiculously fabricated or just um, exaggerated? That's so in that Death of WCW book, isn't it? That yeah. he comes back and he suddenly he's got like a win record of like about 100 and then he wins. And then he wins one more match, and his win record's gone up by another thirty. Or yeah, <laughs> just, like he loses a match via DQ, and another one gets added on. Yeah, like, it just seems really, really strange. Sid would actually capture the WCW World Heavyweight Championship on the January twenty fourth, two thousand episode of Nitro, defeating Kevin Nash after new WCW champion Chris Benoit had defected to the WWF. Sid would remain with the promotion pretty much until the death, with his run notorious for terrible promos, garnering him the 1999 Wrestling Observer Award for Worst on Promos, but the run would perhaps mostly be remembered for the hideous manner in which he broke his leg after diving off the second turnbuckle at the Sin pay-per-view on January the 14th, 2001. Yeah, that looks horrible. Yeah. You've seen the clip? Too many times. Yeah, it's kind of, it just is almost like when he lands, his leg turns to rubber. And it's not got a bone that works in it anymore. It just flops. It's it's not very nice. It is staggering to think that the human body can work like that. Such a strong physique can be so fragile. Yeah, it's one of those ones where you can't quite work out what's gone wrong. Yeah. He doesn't seem to land in in a a a horrible manner. And he's not coming from a huge height compared to some of the heights that he must have come from before. But still, the forces. But yeah, he just must have been in just the right position for it to snap his leg. Sid had not allegedly wanted to perform the top rope manoeuvre, but been encouraged to broaden his arsenal by some in WCW management, mostly believed to be John Laurinaitis. Sid would make sporadic appearances at indie events throughout the years and would make a return to the WWE on the June 25th, 2012 episode of Raw, pinning Heath Slater as part of Slater's ongoing storyline where he ran down various WWE legends. Sid would also make a brief appearance on the thousandth episode of Raw, where he and a plethora of former WWE superstars helped lead to pin Heath Slater. His rightful Hall of Fame induction is still pending. Mm. Yeah, he deserves it, if just for the little run that we've seen of him from where he's come back up until this point where he goes, where it's like the stars have aligned or something. There's no real reason for it, but he just came back and was the biggest thing, and his reactions have been fantastic, and his performances have not been shit. Well, what's the reaction to him like in WCW when he goes? By that point in WCW, it's very much the throwing anything at the wall and seeing what sticks. So sporadic mm. is, is the best way. I don't think anyone's getting kind of consistent reactions at that point in WCW. What's the, the story? I've seen the clips where he's having his cars crushed or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that, that's him and Goldberg, yes. What's that all about? I don't know, but it ends with him jumping up and down on the crushed car going, why me, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's really funny. <laughs> but I don't get it. Yeah, it's really weird. And obviously we get the, the, the infamous I have half the brain that you do promo and all that other yeah. stuff. That... Well, I, I, from watching this stuff, I've, I've, got a, I've got a special place for Sid. I think, well, see, know. that that's what's kind of interesting. So we saw two runs of Sid. We saw kind of January 1995 to January 1996 and then pretty much July 1996 to July 1997. And... Like that first run, he was fucking terrible. Oh yeah, he couldn't he couldn't wrestle. <laughs> Apparently, it was just seemed to be beyond him. But then when he came back, everyone cared, and he was good. And I think we discussed it almost as soon as he came back at International Incident. It was like 
what came first, the chicken or the egg. Sid yeah. was good or Sid was over. It's almost like, for whatever reason, despite the fact he had no pending decent track record, like when he comes back that mid-96, the crowd are just spontaneously mm. into him and he just seems like massively inspired by it. Yeah, he, and- just, he just kind of feeds off it and gives a really good performance. And I remember discussing it after we'd watched that. What, what, it's like a different wrestler. Mm. And we must have asked you at the time, why has this happened? And you were like, I don't know. He's, yeah. just, he's just come back and the crowd, for some reason, are nuclear for him and he, he steps up and does, does the business and it carries on and he keeps putting in decent performances. So, yeah, you'll be missed, Sid. I wasn't really ever looking forward to watching Sid, particularly as a, somebody that I knew a little about before we started the show, but these days it's like, puts it in a match, puts it on the mic and I'm happy. Yeah, I think it's almost like he's become now... He's more known for having a broken leg and saying that he's got half a brain. But actually, he should be known for this this little window in time mm. of where Sid was truly great. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's one of the things is that he's kind of looked back on as a, as a bit of a joke. Like, yeah. you know, he wasn't particularly good. His matches weren't particularly great. He said all these silly things on the mic, like you said. But yeah, like, I'd actively defend Sid to anyone who kind of wanted to sort of deride him purely, yeah, for for this run that we've seen. Like, yeah. that sort of international incident to Survivor Series run, and, you know, a few bits and bobs after that, like the the promo in the Alamo Dome he did for the Royal Rumble. Mm. Like, yeah, there's some genuinely good stuff there. And and the match with Michaels at Survivor Series, and okay, a lot of it can be attributed to Michaels pinballing around for him, but Sid gets a huge reception and well, not yeah. pulls his weight is probably not the right term, but doesn't drag the match down, if that's I the opposite th- of not pulling your weight. Yeah. I think that when he beats Michaels like that, the biggest thing to to say about how well Sid has done, how well received Sid has been, is that Sid can go into that match and win it by like clubbing an old man around the head with a camera and still gets the the face reaction for it. Do you not think that was more to do with the NYC crowd hating Michaels? Quite probably, but normally that those those sorts of actions should be derided. they should they should yeah. get you some sort of heat. But, yeah, he's, everyone loves him, and, and rightly so. It seems like a bit of a redundant question then. Sad to see him go. Yeah. Yes. Very could, much so. Could you see him fitting around in the future, even if he is going to slide down the card as indicated by this pinfall here? As in our immediate timeline future? Yes. Yeah, of course. I, I think there's plenty for him to do. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there could be a place for him. It'd be hard for him not to be on that top level after he's just been perched up there for quite a long time. It would seem odd for... Sid to be mid card and have things like you know maybe lose his pyro because he's not like a top eventer and things like that. That would be a bit odd, but I'm sure that he'd work in some sort of capacity. I'd, you know? I'd have him being used by someone as a muscle, a bodyguard, not or something. not a bit more than that. I think that'd be underutilizing his character. But you could see a clever canny wrestler exploiting him. So not necessarily having like a formal we are together kind of thing, but just kind of turning things around and, and having a word in his ear to make him do what he wanted. See, one of the things I'm quite disappointed we didn't get a bit more of is, and this was during his bad run, is right at the end they started teaming in with the one two three kid. Mm. And I think that could have been really interesting where that could have gone. A really good yeah, exemplar of the, the nicely matched pair, yeah. the really quick, speedy, technical guy and the massive powerhouse. And I always think that as a tag team works really, really nicely. And that's one of the things that I think I enjoyed um, the Owen Hart Yokozuna 
run. I think that worked mm. in that capacity because it can they can really hide the weaknesses of the bigger guy. Yeah. Um, because the, the, the smaller guy that's more technical can do most of the legwork in it. So, yeah, that could have been really good. Last year at the King of the Rings Spectacular, that's where it started for Stone Cold Steve Austin. Mankind, you are one step away from becoming King of the Ring for 1997. The only thing that stands in your way, Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Well, I may not feel like a million bucks. How do I look? But I'll tell you this much. Hunter Hearst Helmsley better be driving a train and better be willing to run me over because I'm not going down for anyone. And there's a line from a movie I once walked by and I feel very strongly about it right now, which says, I just can't wait to be king. Have a nice day. Vince and JR throw to a video package of Austin's promo from the previous year's show, spliced with his victories. This leads to Todd Pettengill backstage with Mankind, who cuts his second promo of the evening, referencing the Lion King. I just can't wait to be king. Todd looks puzzled by this. I was a little puzzled by this. Scrivens, have you seen The Lion King? Yeah. No. No. No, I haven't. No, so that's what it is, because I wrote that down, I just can't wait to be king, and then I thought... So, so basically, Mankind said, I'm referencing a film, and then you thought, what yeah. film? Yes. Have you never seen The Lion King? No. You, that is odd. You show it to baby Scrivens. Elton John. I love it. it. Elton John's not in it, but he I think does he does the, a song Some of the music for it. For it yeah. life, is it? But no, not a clue. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it might be something like a bit more... Hip. Up next is the final of the King of the Ring tournament. It's Mankind versus Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Should be good. Mankind makes his entrance as we see highlights of his victory over Jerry the King Lawler earlier in the evening. JR questions how Helmsley might react having Mankind's fingers shoved in his mouth. Probably not well. Ode to Joy hits, bringing us Helmsley and China once again, with Vince saying that Hunter's victory over Ahmed earlier was an upset. Mankind sits rocking in the corner as China stares at him. Jarse says that Mankind is reacting to his neck and that it must be injured. They lock up and Helmsley throws Mankind off, with JR speculating as to which is weirder, King Mankind or Queen China. Let's not go there. Has Triple H ever tried to buy the WWF? I don't know. Bit of commentary, wasn't it? Yeah. Which I thought was unusual, but also, given what happens in terms of his control... Is um, all part of his master plan dating yeah. back to the nineteen ninety seven King of the Ring? Yeah, I think he's had it. Uh, it was him all along. Helmsley applies a side headlock, but it goes nowhere. The crowd is dead at the opening of this one. Yeah, the crowd have died, and this is the a, pace is slow. A slow starting match. Helmsley applies another headlock, which again goes nowhere. A third, and Mankind throws him off and gets a shoulder block. Mankind kicks away at Helmsley and rakes at the blue blood's face. JR tells us that the final part of his interview series with Mankind is coming this Monday and it's been an eye-opening experience, especially for him. Helmsley avoids a decking from Mankind by bailing to the outside to take a break. Helmsley takes the advantage, raking Mankind's face and kicking him to the outside. Mankind pulls Helmsley out with him and hits punches before ramming Helmsley into the steel steps. Mankind brings Helmsley back in and bites away at his face in the corner before Helmsley drops Mankind face first onto the top turnbuckle. Helmsley hits a neckbreaker and pulls at the mask of Mankind. Helmsley sets Mankind up over the bottom rope and targets his head and neck. Mankind fights back and we get a fist fight before Helmsley hits a clothesline. With Helmsley distracting the referee, China hits a forearm to Mankind to very little reaction. It feels like you've gone through a lot of stuff there, but I don't remember any of it happening. and I don't think that's a good thing to say about a wrestling match. I think there's probably quite a lot of time there that you've condensed 
Yeah. Because it, it is slow-paced, but it is odd that China doesn't get the reactions the first time we've seen her involvement in something not get a reasonable size reaction. And maybe it is just the fact that they've, as we said, that the crowd's just been killed off by that crush match. Mankind makes a comeback with a mule kick to the groin of Helmsley. Mankind charges Helmsley on the ropes, but Hunter moves and Mankind gets caught up via his head in the ropes, which causes his mask to come off, though he quickly puts it back on. It looks so horrible, mm. that head trapped in the rope spot. I don't know. It's one of those moves that makes you sit up and take notice, but I'd rather that that wasn't in wrestling. Well, you don't really see it, do you? Well, I've not seen it in a while, no. no. Oh, we, I remember we saw I think it was the first Rumble that it's we did. It's yeah. yeah. And yeah. And that was a real kind of gasp moment. I think whenever you see it, you kind of think, that can't do you any good. But I don't think I've seen outside of those two on WWF, WWE. I don't think I've ever seen it done by anyone else. Not off the top of my head, I can't no. recall, but certainly nothing lately. Because it's, it's quite it, dangerous looking. Yeah, and it looks like you, you have to be so precise with what you're doing that there's you know a real risk of breaking your neck. Mankind wanders backwards close to China before Helmsley baseball slides him into the barricade. Helmsley joins on the outside and bangs Mankind's head into the steel steps. His head takes a real bashing tonight, and that again makes me quite uncomfortable. I mean, it's not—is it King of the Ring '99, Royal Rumble '99? You know, it's, it's it's not that levels of brutality, but it's like it's not a good night for his head. Back in the ring, Mankind sells punches like death. Helmsley hits knee drops to the head of Mankind as mild boring chants can be heard. Mm. Mankind gets a comeback, dropping Helmsley over the top rope and covering for a two. He hits the same manoeuvre for another two. A third attempt ends in something which may well have been meant to be a DDT by Helmsley, but looks awful. Yeah, that it, it was just a bit of a crumple, wasn't it? And I think it's at this point that Vince says, you won't get a lot of fancy manoeuvring. You're right. <laughs> Mankind pummels Helmsley in the corner and drives his knee into the side of Hunter's head. Still no heat. Helmsley takes a flare bump in the corner and Mankind drops an elbow across an upside down Helmsley. Mankind throws Helmsley to the outside, but misses a baseball slide. He does, however, connect with a back body drop to a charging Helmsley. How'd you learn to fall on concrete? It's a good question. Mankind follows this with a cactus elbow on the concrete, which always looks like it fucking kills your hip. Yeah. yeah. It's one of those ones that, as well. It's, it's one of those moves that probably causes him a great deal of pain for not a great pay- payoff with the crowd. It looks good. But it's not like an oh my god moment. Well, I mean, you can see like how well Mick Foley walks these days. I imagine doing those types of moves for twenty years—that's what you get. A contributing factor, yes. <laughs> yeah. In the ring, Mankind hits a double arm DDT, but China distracts the referee, which gets some heat and booze when Helmsley kicks out of the eventual two count. Well, it's quite like the double arm DDT. Yeah, I think it's, it's a good looking move. Obviously, he's not really used to that as Mankind. It's previously used it Jack. as Cactus Jack. Yeah. yeah. Helmsley sets up for the pedigree, but Mankind back body drops him out of it and applies the mandible claw, which gets the biggest reaction of the match so far. Yeah, was, people was, love that move. Well, it was a fairly similar setup to the ending of his first match, wasn't it? Well, I think it was a Sunset callback. Flip, yeah. yeah. With the referee down to see if Hunter gives up, China pulls Mankind straight out of the ring to the mats. She On his head. She mm. insists to the referee that she did nothing. The, the referees, are, I love when the referees have not seen something. And this is the most blatant body because he, he, he stands up and looks a bit shocked and sees that Mankind's gone out. And says, Did you do anything? Just like, no. He just <laughs> fell out. It's like the footballers. So, to see, I forget which match it was, but basically, one of the guys had his shirt pretty much ripped off mm. in one of the other games. And, like, you know, I, I didn't pull his shirt. 
<laughs> just, just came away in my hand. They should make footballers wear boxing gloves so they can't pull each other's shirts. <laughs> it's one of the most frustrating bits of the game. Helmsley hits the neck breaker over the top rope, causing Mankind to fall back to the floor. Mankind rolls back inside and Helmsley pulls his mask off, throwing it away. Helmsley heads to the top rope and Mankind applies the claw, but Helmsley thumbs Mankind in the eye. Mankind hits an atomic drop and a clothesline for a two count. Mankind clotheslines Helmsley and himself to the outside as China skulks in the background. Mankind gets up on the apron and looks to back elbow Helmsley who is resting on the railing. China pulls Helmsley out of the way and Mankind clocks the steel once again head first. Oh, it's the one thing he, he didn't want to... Why? His, his head has just taken such a bashing. This is finally enough for the official who seems to be insisting that China leaves but she just doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, it, it felt a little bit weak because... It's like he's making quite a big deal of it as well and the camera's quite focused on it and then it's just, eh, no, okay. she's still there. Yeah. This really cuts off the ref's balls. You know, if he's telling someone to go and they don't do it, everyone always, like when they get banned from the ring, they always go. Yeah, even if it is sort of like a puny referee telling them to piss off, they always yeah. leave, yeah. Even if, like, because we've seen him banish the entire nation from, yeah. from around her. There's about six people he's sort of fuck off and they do it, but she doesn't. It's, it's a bit like saying, you know, if, if, you, if you don't eat your apple... Baby Scrivens, you can't come to the zoo. Oh, you've had a bite, you can come. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Is that based on a true story? Most days. <laughs> Meanwhile, Helmsley whips Mankind headfirst into the steel steps and begins removing the monitors from JR and Vince's announce table. Helmsley sets Mankind up on the table and hits the pedigree all of which the referee is seemingly also fine with. Yeah. Nice. It's, it's a good looking spot, though. I it's a good looking spot, but the table breaks quite slowly. Yeah, it's. it's because we're still at this point, aren't we, where they've not manufactured the tables to break in the right way. But I think it still looks pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But what we do get from this is the occasional shot of JR and Vince just looking really sorry behind their broken yeah. table. <laughs> do you not think it perhaps suffers as a spot because Mankind's taken more impressive ones into the table, like the headfirst one oh. at Revenge of Taker? Mm. No, I, th- I thought that this was a good spot, actually. But, yeah, the, I think having those gimmicked tables and and have the crisp break is important actually mm. Mankind tries to throw a chair in the ring but fails and as he tries to climb back in the ring China wallops him with a steel scepter across the back Helmsley charges Mankind and knees him off the apron causing Mankind to fall backwards into a ringside photographer yeah that didn't look like it was meant to happen Hunter brings Mankind back into the ring a small Mankind chant starts up Helmsley covers arrogantly, and Mankind kicks out at two, which does get a big reaction. Yeah. Helmsley hits the pedigree and covers for the three at 19.26 to small booze. Post-match, Helmsley demands Todd come into the ring and give him the crown as we see a replay of the scepter shot. Pettingill gets ready to begin the coronation ceremony as Mankind lays dead in the middle of the ring. JR calls China a Jezebel. Oh. Another one of his popular JRisms for basically all women for the next five years. It was interesting, like, she really totaled that septum. We heard from the, the Brett thing that that really is quite a painful blow to take. Do you want to have a rundown of what Jezebel means? Yeah, sure, go for it. Okay, well, I did a bit of looking into this upon, I think, your your suggestion. Celebrity it, Watch with Adam is yeah, back. It's now down to, is this the earliest one that we've done? Jezebel? Probably. Maybe, because JR does use it an awful lot. In, in the future, doesn't he? So Jezebel was a, a ninth century queen of Israel. Well, she was married to the king of Israel anyway, which was Ahab. And she was most noted for persuading her husband to worship different deities. Right. So to not worship the ones that they always had done and worship these other ones. They're definitely the right ones. 
She persecuted prophets of the original deities and had someone put to death by fabricating evidence that they'd done something wrong. So I think sounds like an awful person. Yeah, yeah. So, but she kind of gets her comeuppance because uh, for her acts against God and the people of Israel, uh, she was thrown out of a window <laughs> by her own court, and the flesh of her corpse was eaten by stray dogs. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, it doesn't say which floor this window was on, but I'm led to believe that the fall killed her, so it wouldn't have been ground level. But she is associated with, basically, false prophets, with the idea of manipulation and seduction, and then as time sort of like went on, that idea of corrupting people, and so it generally got, it got boiled down to sexually promiscuous and or controlling women. Right. So I'm guessing that's where uh, JR's going with it. But it's, it's more or less morphed into a saying for kind of like prostitutes. So anyone that is a woman that is controlling someone, making them do something against their you know, better judgment maybe, or, or just a bit of a hussy. Jezebel. Okay. <laughs> Would you describe Mrs. Scrivens as a Jezebel? Does she make you do things against your will? Worship false deities. No, it occasionally makes me kind of get drinks like... <laughs> Now, rather than in a minute, which is what I want to do. And she is one for leaving cupboard doors open, oh my word. Well, that, maybe that is the actions of a Jezebel. I mean, it's deeply upsetting. <laughs> Don't throw her out a window. No, no, I won't, but um, it does get frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think, like, you think of the effort, you should probably put something away in the cupboard. It's very little effort to shut the door after it. I mean, we've... <laughs> We've even got like soft closed doors. I mean, you could you could pretty much try and slam it, and it'd be fine. <laughs> I do think that we've just got a little insight into your life there. Mm. <laughs> Welcome to married life with Scrivens. <laughs> it's a bloody doors again. So <laughs> <laughs> she does it with the car door at night. It's yeah. It's <laughs> Joanna puts the robe on Helmsley, and he curtsies as Todd gives Hunter the crown. Hunter chooses to clock mankind with it rather than put it on his head. Helmsley and China leave as Pettengill announces him the 1997 King of the Ring. Mankind crawls out of the ring, attempting to follow Helmsley and China. He's right ruined his crown, though. It's, have you seen it? It's fabric. The, yeah. the, the, there's no kind of proper metal part to it. It's, it's like a really bad felt one. <laughs> like you get at a fancy dress type. Yeah, it is, I thought it was a really poor effort of a crown. What do you make to kind of his coronation in the... Is he the first king to not cut any kind of speech after winning it? I, th- I thought this really shows where they're value- valuing the King of the Ring. Right. I mean, if you, you look at it at the place on the card, and okay, I don't necessarily believe it has to be the main event, but it needs to have a higher profile. So only having the semi-finals and finals gives it less of a focus this year. Having Lorna, I think, you know, a non-consistent character gives it a lower profile having some relatively low profile matches doesn't help yeah it's not been a good year for king of the ring i don't think as for the match itself could have done with being shorter i reckon you could probably about chop it in half and lose that open in slow 10 minutes i I think it it built up and there was some enjoyable things in it but it was yeah that it was just a bit too drawn out to start off with for my liking do you think it's a victim of the rest of the card by now because I, I would have expected these two to... It may be just a match, but I would have expected these two to have done better. When, when you open a card like the way that they've done it here, it makes anything else that's on it like an uphill struggle because the crowd... And this was a good crowd. Yeah. 
and they've really, at the start anyway. Yeah, they've, they, turned, they, yeah. they've really been sort of like just pushed back, and if they finally, have, unless you do something outstanding, they're not really going to get into it because it wasn't think. a massive pop for the table spot. No, because I thought the kick out got the biggest yeah. pop of the match. But I was expecting the crowd to be more invested in this, and particularly mankind. It wasn't horrendous again. No, just, it, was, it was all right. But that's not what you want for the King of the Ring finals. No. Yeah, I'll go along with you going way, way, way too long and absolutely dead in spots. Mankind is definitely getting there as a face, but Helmsley once again struggled for heat. The length of the match even killed China's interference, which has been relatively heated whenever we've seen it. A damp end to a pretty damp tournament, though Mankind did his best. Won't be regarded as a classic. No. How much does Triple H play up to this King of the Ring victory? Because I'd perhaps keep it on a relatively low profile with this reaction to it. Yeah, it doesn't become a major part of his gimmick. He doesn't run with kind of being King Helmsley. But is this where the, is this where the King of Kings comes from at all? Or? No, that's, that's not till that's way later. A decade isn't it? after okay. this, no. So, so this wasn't a seed that then just grew into. Okay, no, no, no. Did Austin really carry anything? No, I mean, Austin did nothing with the King yeah, of the Ring gimmick itself. All. It would occasionally get referenced that he won it, and I think it's probably the same with Helmsley. Then again, like, Brett didn't do that much. Brett with didn't it. do anything with Owen's it. Owen's the only one that really gave it some kind of... Mystique? No, yeah. someone else ran with it. Jerry the King, Lola. Someone else had it as their gimmick for their... King Mabel? Yes, for their next year. Oh, oh King Marbler. Yeah, but... <sighs> Try and he didn't do anything him. successful with it. He didn't do anything successful with it, but he got a sort of main event as King Mabel, didn't he? He, he got carried out on a chair. Those <laughs> poor, poor people. But yeah, no, it's not a major part of Helmsley's character going forward. The Mankind feud is, but the King of the Ring character isn't. Mm. For nearly four months, an injury kept Shawn Michaels from fully showcasing his athletic prowess. But it did not thwart him from serving notice that he was still a force in the WWF. Still, no one could have imagined that his restless efforts during that period would facilitate a bond with the most unlikely of candidates. But on the night of his celebrated return, the Heartbreak Kid officially, albeit reluctantly, joined forces with Stone Cold Steve Austin in an effort to eliminate a mutual foe. Can he through a single-minded purpose, it appeared these two would temporarily put aside their differences in hopes of dismantling the Hart Foundation. Their tag team effort was nothing short of impressive. And while Shawn Michaels was back in full stride, his effort and that of Austin's were overshadowed by the mere image of them as partners. Reality, however, found its way into the picture with Bret Hart. Clearly, his plan was to welcome Shawn Michaels back to the WWF in his own fashion, and certainly not to witness his camp fall victim to this hated odd couple. So it came as little surprise when Mayhem replaced Celebration at the conclusion of this bout. Biggest skeptics of the Stone Cold Shawn Michaels combination watched in horror as Austin abandoned Michaels and zeroed in on his personal prize. No, no! Austin has taken Bret Hart apart! Obligated. 
to continue their unlikely partnership. Controversy substituted for camaraderie. One must wonder if the foundation of this showdown was carefully crafted by Bret Hart. Spectacular in sequence, Michaels and Austin are now paradoxically pitted to face one another. The once plotted demise of the Hart Foundation has twisted into a mono a mono contest of can you top this? I'm telling you what's going to happen. Shawn Michaels and Stone Cold Steve Austin are in the street fight out here. A video package tells us about Shawn's knee injury and subsequent alliance with Steve Austin as some 80s training montage music plays in the background. Yeah, strange this. We see the duo win the WWF Tag Team titles as narrator Todd Pettengill gushes over Michael's performance in the match. We see the Hart Foundation kicking Michael's in the head after the bout as Austin leaves the ring to confront Bret Hart on the ramp. Sean naturally wasn't pleased with this and confronts Austin backstage. Todd ponders if this showdown was crafted by Bret Hart. And back at ringside, as Adam mentioned earlier, we get a shot of JR and Vince sitting at a broken table looking sad. <laughs> it's a wonderful image. You'll have to screen cap it. As JR sells the determination of mankind in the previous bout. Just do me a big favour and shut up for a couple of seconds. It's just about that time. The time has come that I'm no longer an invalid. At least not much longer. No longer will I be a cripple. Not somebody that can be bullied and jumped while he's in a wheelchair and on crutches. The, the time has come, or coming, for a little retribution. I've surrounded myself with the best that the World Wrestling Federation has to offer. Men that I would take with me to the mouth of hell to fight the devil himself. I have Jim the Anvil Neidhart, the British Bulldog, the great Brian Pillman, my damn good brother Owen, we are the Heart Foundation, and I would allow these men to pump their blood with my heart. July 6th, the Canadian Stampede. I think that would be an appropriate time for me to make myself available and the rest of the Heart Foundation. So we want to issue a challenge to any five wrestlers in the World Wrestling Federation that want to cross that border and come into my hometown. Five wrestlers with the guts to take the Heart Foundation on in the Canadian Stampede because I think that it's payback time. Now don't be surprised if you don't get about 20 or 25 wrestlers coming up with 
sore knees and pulled quad muscles and lower back spasms. But the fact is, the Hitman is coming back July 6th in the Calgary Saddle Dome at the In Your Haste, In Your House pay-per-view. And payback time is coming for all you good American wrestling fans. Bret Hart's theme hits, bringing the Hart Foundation in full force to the ring. Vince telling us that Bret is supposed to be providing colour commentary on the upcoming match, but with their damaged equipment, he may not be able to. It's not so much damaged as they hadn't got it in the first place, it feels like. It was a bit of an oversight. It's like, oh, we're going to have an extra commentator. Did you bring the headset? I thought you bought the headset. <laughs> Todd Pettingill enters the ring to interview Brett, but Brett basically tells him to piss off. <laughs> Brett says it's just about time for him to return from injury and he wants a little retribution. He says he has surrounded himself with the best the WWF has to offer, men he would take to the mouth of hell to fight alongside him, and men he would allow to pump their blood through his heart. He issues a challenge for July 6th and the Canadian Stampede to any five American wrestlers to cross the border, come into his hometown and take them on. Brett fluffs in your house, calling it in your haste, and says he's going to commentate. Not one of his best efforts, but it sets the challenge Mm. up. Yeah, it's a little thing, but he he recovered from it okay. Vince tries to explain to Brett that there is no available headset as Brian Pillman swipes at JR. Eventually, a number of officials appear and order the entire Hart Foundation to leave the ring prior to the match commencing, though they take their time leaving against their will. They do wander past a sign that says, Vince, don't ruin Sasuke. Really? Yeah, yes, yeah. in the aisle way. Okay, qu- qu- quick question before we get to it. If you had to pick any five guys to face the Hart Foundation on the current roster, who would you pick? I would pick, I mean, you'd have to pick Michaels, you'd have to pick... Ahmed. Austin, probably Ahmed. So I'm not worrying, worrying about face heel or anything, but I'd pick Ahmed. I'd be tempted to pick, probably would pick Shamrock as the new one. Vader, yeah, yeah, maybe. That'd, that'd be a good five. Sounds like a good team. Yeah. Is that what it is? Well, we'll wait and see next episode, won't we? Up next is Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Shawn Michaels in our semi-main event. At this point, it feels like we must be close to triple figures when discussing the topic scheduled WWF pay-per-view matches that were changed in 1997, and this bout provides us with a further two planned contests that ended up amalgamated into this one match. Really? Originally scheduled were Bret the Hitman Hart versus Shawn Michaels and Brian Pillman versus Stone Cold Steve Austin. Okay. Oh, so what happened? As discussed previously, Brett and Sean were due to face off in a rematch from their title bout one year earlier at WrestleMania 13 in March, but Sean's lost smile put the brakes on that one. Following In Your House a Cold Day in Hell, Hart and Michael's rematch was made for this show with a couple of added stipulations. Firstly, that Owen Hart, Davy Boy Smith, Jim Neidhart and Brian Pillman would all be handcuffed to one of the corner posts each, and secondly, Brett claimed that he could beat Sean in only 10 minutes, and if he didn't, he would never wrestle again in the United States. Oh, yeah, I remember that. This stipulation was added for one main reason, namely to keep the match short as Brett was returning to the ring following legitimate knee surgery, unless we forget that Sean would also be returning after his career-ending knee injury that didn't require any surgery. By the end of May, however, Brett, Sean, the sequel was once again abandoned. Firstly, the hitman's recovery from surgery hasn't quite gone as quickly as planned, explaining Steve Austin's attack on Brett's knee at the end of the May 26th Raw is War. Secondly, on the May 12th Raw, the show's main event segment had featured Brett and Sean once again exchanging words, with Brett spewing venom at Michaels from his wheelchair. The end of the segment and the show was supposed to be Brett getting up on his crutches and Michael superkicking the hitman in response to his words. Brett, however, missed his cue and carried on talking, with the end of the show simply becoming Brett firing bile at Michaels while the latter just stood there and took it. Michaels would superkick Hart, but only after the show had gone off the air. 
When Sean found out about this, needless to say, he was less than pleased, feeling that Brett had double-crossed him and made him look stupid. So he missed his cue, so he basically started talking too late, was that the...? Well, I think it's more to do with Brett was supposed to hit a certain line which would have triggered Sean to kick him, but Brett forgot the line, so just carried on talking. Okay. Show goes off the air. Right. You can see see why he'd be irritated by that. How irritated was he? I expect he just let it go and was fine with everything. (laughs) Seems like the sort of thing he might do. Yeah. He's a nice guy. Footage of Michael's kick to Brett would air on that weekend's Shotgun Saturday night, as well as the following week's Raw. Speaking of that show, Michaels would turn up for work in what can only be described as no condition to perform. Does that mean kind of... Really fat. No, not for that one week. He wasn't so, really some, kind of, some kind of substance abuse? Yes, he did, however, still manage to appear on television, cutting a promo on the Hitman via the Titantron, where he made the infamous Sunny Days comment, claiming that Brett couldn't last 10 minutes in any situation, setting the rumour mills running regarding Hart and everyone's favourite diva. Well, Adams, she's not my favourite. Naturally, Hart wasn't pleased about Michaels making this allegation live on air. Michaels would also be causing as much trouble off-air, demanding a new contract from Vince McMahon that would put his pay on the same level as Hart, and when McMahon turned down his demands, Michaels threatened to quit the promotion and join his real friends in WCW. He pulled that card out, eh? As we saw on the May 26 Rory's War, cooler heads would prevail for the time being, and Michaels would make his televised in-ring return, teaming with Stone Cold Steve Austin to capture the WWF tag team titles from Davey Boy Smith and Owen Hart. With Michael's heart match abandoned due to Brett's knee injury and Brian Pillman's own return from injury delayed even further, the two marquee non-title singles matches scheduled for this show became one. During an interview with Vince McMahon, which also contained a split screen of Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels in separate locker rooms on the Titantron, Bret Hart would reveal that he wouldn't be competing against Shawn at King of the Ring, with Michaels pissed that he couldn't get his hands on the hitman. Austin, on the contrary, would be pleased with putting the hitman out of action for an even longer time. Austin's scheduled opponent, Brian Pillman, would seize the opportunity to meddle and offer Austin and Michaels the chance to get their hands on each other at the pay-per-view, graciously stepping aside and postponing his match with Austin until a couple of weeks later on Raw. Getting over that neither of their egos would allow them to back down, Austin and Michaels both accepted the challenge with the Hart Foundation pleased with their scheming, hoping that their two biggest foes would destroy each other. Unfortunately for Stone Cold and the Heartbreak Kid, the duo had a pre-arranged tag team title defence against the Legion of Doom to contest later in the broadcast. With the Hart Foundation naturally making an appearance in the bout, Austin and Michaels would get counted out and retain the straps, brawling with each other following the decision. Austin and Michaels would almost come to blows yet again the night before this show on the June 7th shotgun with referees and various officials preventing the brawl. As he couldn't get to Michaels, Austin would choose to attack colour commentator Brian Pillman instead. As pushed on commentary, this is indeed the first time WWF Tag Team Champions would face each other in a pay-per-view singles match, although it would happen again in the future, most notably Rey Mysterio vs Eddie Guerrero at WrestleMania 21 and Shawn Michaels vs John Cena at WrestleMania 23. It seems to happen quite a lot these days. See, I thought that, but going through it, I couldn't find that many examples of it. Really? Mm. Yeah. I, th- I thought it seemed to be like every SmackDown from when <laughs> T-Lo was... Well, maybe it's uh, on TV. It yeah. happens quite regularly. But I, I was looking for kind of pay-per-view matches okay. where tag champs faced each other. And there might be more than that, but th- those two feel like the most notable two to yeah. me. Any thoughts on all the Brett Sean stuff? It just seems to just rumble onwards, doesn't it? Does anything go smoothly? Not, in, not in, for the next six months. In regards to these two, is there anything, you know, there's just problem after squabble after hissy fit? I think it's I think it's quite interesting to hear all this backstory because the one thing that I thought was that this bit of storyline made perfect sense. So I think although it wasn't their A plan, I think they've covered up really quite well because uh, somebody not knowing that backstory, I kind of think the fact that 
the Canadians or the Heart Foundation are trying to play Stone Cold and, and Sean off makes perfect sense. Mm. I sure can, Vin. Thanks a lot, Stone Cold. To state the obvious, Bret Hart and the Hart Foundation are probably hoping you and Shawn Michaels annihilate each other, take each other out of the mix, so to speak. I don't think it's any secret that you and Shawn Michaels are not best friends, probably won't ever be best friends, but you are WWF Tag Team Champions. That is putting green in your jeans, and I know you want to prove a personal point to each other, but where do you draw the line for proving a point or hurting each other and hurting your chances of staying WWF Tag Team Champions. In my opinion, the point has already been proved. Shawn Michaels knows that I am indeed the captain of the tag team. You're damn right you make more money if you got some belts around your waist. I won't deny that fact. Do I want to go out there and cripple Shawn Michaels? You're damn right. No on second thought. I don't want to do that because I'll keep him around to keep the belts around our waist. But Shawn Michaels, you hear this. You forced me to turn up the violence factor. You can damn well bet I'll do it. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. All right, Vince, back to you. Doc Hendricks is stood by backstage with Stone Cold Steve Austin, who questions how badly he and Shawn Michaels will beat each other up when they're better off being tag team champions. Austin says he is the captain of the team, but doesn't want to cripple Michaels as he needs him around. We get a pretty cool shot of Austin heading towards the ring and mouthing off at the Hart Foundation before he makes his entrance. Vince also questions how and why Steve Austin has become so popular. Austin heads to the ring and gets a decent pop, but I genuinely think both Ahmed and Sid got bigger ones. Mm, Is that yeah. just my ears? No, no. Yeah. We see highlights of Austin and Pillman earlier in the evening as Austin mouths off at JR and Vince at ringside. JR says that Austin has the personality of a rattlesnake. Uh, Might run with that. I think so. I think Stone Cold feels like pretty much there now. Yeah, the and I think that's the first time that I've genuinely thought that he's not just in the ascension. He's that's him, and, and that's I think quite a nice place to be actually. Yeah, he's, he's on the top tier, isn't he? But yeah, his, his reactions weren't. When he came out, it was it was big, but it wasn't massive. Again, maybe it's as we've pointed out multiple times. Maybe it's just the placing in the card. Maybe if this had been the opening match, Stone Cold might have had a massive reaction. Okay, Vince, thank you very much, Sean. I'll pose the same question I just threw to Stone Cold. You both want to prove a personal point to each other. But will the end justify the means? Will the point be worth proving if you end up hurting your tag team and do exactly what Bret Hart and the Hart Foundation want to see you two do to each other? Well, see, you know, all I can think of is that's the only key. The Hart Foundation wants Steve Austin and a heartbreak hit to tear each other apart. Ordinarily, we'd do it. Since they want it, I can't help but to say, I don't want to do it. The whole world is expecting a classic of a lifetime. Is it going to happen? I don't know. I'm in a tag team right now. I got my opponent. I got my belt to worry about. You tell me. What's the answer? I don't know. Doc is now stood by with Shawn Michaels, asking him pretty much the same question he just asked Austin. Shawn says that as that's what the hearts want, he's prone to not beating Austin up. He mumbles something and leaves as we see a disturbing amount of children dressed as Shawn Michaels being held up by their parents at ringside. It's really odd. But wasn't it interesting that Shawn Michaels' top was made of milk bottle tops? Kind of sewn together? Did you pick that out? It was like a magpie had made it. Naturally, Michaels gets the most elaborate pyro display of anyone on the show so far. Someone gives him a flower as he wanders down the aisle. Yeah, so that flower I saw knocking around the show earlier. I thought, what's that flower for? Apparently it's for Shawn Michaels. Michaels enters the ring and poses before taking off his pretty ridiculous outfit. Vince says he isn't too fond of a pierced navel. Yes, 
So that was an unnecessary piece of commentary. Have you not noticed it's always something they bring up about Sean when they talk about things you might not like about him, as that he's got a pierced belly burn. It's but everything like, else is fine. Everything else is fine, yeah. It's like when Vince is weighing up. It's like, you know, when you're trying to figure out if you really like someone, like, well, yeah, he, he's really cool and I like spending time with him and stuff, but he's got a pierced navel. Like, mm, that's sne- what Vince is doing in his head. Well, he sneezes. Yeah, he yeah. sneezes and I hate that. Yeah. Or, if Undertaker, Could never be his friend. If Undertaker's assessing a potential partner, does she like cucumbers? cucumbers. No. <laughs> that sounds more sinister. <laughs> Teenage girls at ringside lose their shit. Yes, it's almost like they've, they've wheeled in some young ones this time. I mean, they, they do talk about this later in the match that Austin's fan have more bass in their voice. Yeah, it's, it's very squealy, isn't it, the, the Shawn Michaels fans? Austin and Shawn stare each other down as the bell rings. They lock up and Austin gets a headlock followed by a shoulder block to a mixed reaction. He follows this with the double bird. At ringside, security can be seen tackling someone from getting into the ring. Austin looks on puzzled. Hmm. So does Sean. As security wrestle the man, whom Vince actually refers to as a mentally challenged individual. Does he, does he not say Special Olympian? He says Special Olympian as well, but his first reference is mentally challenged individual. I'm shaking my head. Sean approaches, but Austin attacks and rolls him back into the ring. Sean hits an arm drag to counter Austin's attack and gives Austin the double bird before leaving the ring again to see what's happening with security. There's a bit of swearing in between as well, isn't there, I think? Michaels actually seems to want to help the lad, whose mother runs up the aisle to escort him away. Vince praises Sean's humanitarianism as a side of HBK that few knew he had. To to be fair, I think he comes across quite well in that little section. Yeah, in Sean's defence, which is not something we do often, and he actually comes across quite, quite well in that. Like, I think he seems perturbed by perhaps the aggressiveness with which security are dealing yes. with, with the bloke. Yeah, yeah. Which, which perhaps, I don't know, it, there's a bits, bits of communication that go on, because there's a bit of communication where, I forget who the ref is in this match, but is it Tim, Tim White? White yeah. So it's Tim White is talking to Stone Cold, because they're quite near that. And then you see Stone, uh, sorry, you see Shawn Michaels across the other side of the ring, mouthing something and then it's like he's trying to get there to sort things out or to tell the security guys to back off and he's trying to kind of alleviate it which i think given the fact that this is a live pay-per-view is quite a brave move but if anybody's got license to do it i guess it's him i think it's a a good bit of improvisation from both of them actually in that the first time Sean goes over there, Austin still attacks him because that is something the Austin character would do but i think Sean's improvisation is realizing that the, the the lad is trying to get to him, him yeah or you know even maybe trying to get to austin to stop him attacking sean and yeah. sean just sort of escorts him away so yeah. i think he realizes like rather than you know watching security sort of try and wrestle him away like actually there's a really easy solution yeah. to it. it's like i'll mm. come over and say look pal come with me kind yeah. of thing and and that does seem to sort of resolve the situation mm. which yeah. yeah you know bravo sean yeah yeah back in the ring austin and michaels lock up and austin rings sean's arm viciously Sean reverses and gets a takedown into a side headlock. Austin gets to his feet, but Sean jumps off the turnbuckle, holding onto the headlock and keeping Austin down. Sean gets a shoulder block, but Austin gets a back elbow and poses to a mixed reaction. Austin targets the head of Michaels as Sean wriggles out of chinlock attempts into one of his own. Is that the one that has quite a cool little escape by Sean? Yeah, well, he sort of wriggles out of it. It's, it's a little bit different. It just goes. It's almost like a different route. It's almost like it goes, I'm going to say that way, like... This way. Yeah, towards Stuart. But then he goes a different way, towards Adam, perhaps. <laughs> no, no, because I think normally they go towards Adam, but he went towards you. 
Okay. JR randomly chooses to talk about the duo having strong father figures in their lives, and I'm not sure what that has to do with anything. (laughs) (laughs) Sean transitions to a headlock as Austin gets to his feet and shoots him off. Michaels looks for a Fez press, but Austin counters with an atomic drop and sends Sean to the outside, which Michaels sells by rolling around on his head on the outside. (laughs) It's almost like that tree one he did with Sid. Mm. Yeah. Austin brings Michaels back into the ring with a suplex, but Michaels counters into a pin and a drop toehold. Vince tells us that backstage, Mankind has refused medical attention. Austin bails from the ring, escaping an armbar from Michaels and regrouping. Austin re-enters the ring and wants a test of strength, and Sean is reluctant, so Austin calls him a chicken. Austin and Michaels engage in a mid-ring game of peanuts, with Austin dominating. <laughs> do you ever wish to do, like, thummy war? Yeah. Or, or a game <laughs> of slapses? Ah, slaps. I'll not play that in a while. Michaels gets back to his feet and boots Austin in the gut to girly screams before hitting a big back body drop for a two. I would say again that it sounds like you've said a lot of stuff, but I felt the start of this match was pretty slow. It's a builder. Yeah, slow builder. Austin quickly avoids an elbow drop before Sean does the same and applies an armbar. Austin also manages to knock a cameraman off the apron, bouncing off the ropes. Michaels gets a shoulder block before Austin gets the Fez press and pounds away at Michaels' face to a mixed reaction. Michaels counters more of a pounding, rolling Austin up for a pin, followed by a sequence of pinfall attempts by both men. Well, I thought that was a good little section, actually. That was my favourite bit of the match so far. Austin throws Michaels to the outside, with Michaels taking a trademark big bump. Austin doesn't want to win via countout and brings Michaels up onto the apron, stamping his neck over the rope as Tim White counts. Austin knocks Michaels off the apron and onto the railing before posing on the top rope. There's a lot of this off the apron to the guardrail tonight. It's... Yeah, like every match. Yeah. Austin brings up the protective mats at ringside, exposing the concrete as Vince waffles on about nobody being able to take the punishment that Michaels can, despite the fact that the whole crux of the Mankind angle was that, and they were discussing that minutes earlier. Austin drops Sean neck first over the railing before bringing him up to the exposed concrete. Austin looks for punches, but Sean rallies until Austin sends him into the steps. Austin lifts Sean up and drops him stomach first on the concrete. Back in the ring, Austin ducks a Michaels flying forearm and Sean once again falls to the outside. Was that the bit where I thought he was going for a crossbody and he just looks like he just completely misses? No, it's he's going for the flying forearm, isn't he? And Austin ducks but doesn't quite make it in time, so it kind of looks like Sean falls over him. Yeah, it looks weird. I, I felt it slightly strange. In the ring, Austin looks for a scoop slam, but Michaels rolls him up for a two count. Austin quickly hits a clothesline of his own for a two. Austin hits an elbow from the second rope for a pinfall attempt, but Sean kicks out to a pop. Austin applies a chin lock and looks to use the ropes to his advantage when Tim White isn't looking. As Austin argues with the referee, Michaels gets to his feet and we get another fist fight before Austin once again tries to lob Sean to the outside, but Sean reverses and Austin flies out of the ring. Sean hits a baseball slide as males boo him and women cheer him. That's where they talk about the bass in the voice, I think. Sean looks to suplex Austin back into the ring, but Austin slides out. Sean hits a flying forearm on a back body drop. Sean charges Austin, but Austin moves and Michaels goes shoulder first into the ring post. Austin exposes Michaels' bottom, pulling him into the ring, which gets big female cheers. Austin whips Michaels across the ring, but Sean leaps to the second rope for a crossbody and dives into a pinfall attempt, but Austin reverses and gets a two of his own. Again, think this is now getting... You, you did say it was building, it's starting to pick up again here, isn't it? Austin wallops Sean with a clothesline for another two. Sean takes his trademark bump into the corner before reversing an Austin Irish whip attempt directly into Tim White. Austin hits the stunner to a pop, but obviously there's no referee. Austin tries to wake the referee up, only to hit the stunner to Tim White before turning into sweet chin music. It, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, you want to win the match, I don't know. I'll stun the referee so he can't 
Make it count. Why does he stunner the ref? He, he's a loose cannon. <laughs> he, he could do anything. In, yeah. in this case, he's just a bit of an idiot. Seems really bizarre. Here. Wake up, wake up, wake up, now go back to sleep. Another referee arrives on the scene, but he's more concerned about his pal than counting a pinfall. Yeah, I love he just runs past the pinfall. <laughs> <It's> brilliant. <laughs> I did expect him to count the pinfall, yeah. but like Austin to kick out or whatever, but he just runs past yeah, it. Yeah, that's good, yeah. that was. Sean super kicks the new referee and insists the old one count his pin, but Austin kicks out at <laughs> two. Earl Hebner arrives on the scene, giving everyone a fucking reek good telling off. <laughs> And throws the match out as a double disqualification at 22-29 to Big Booze. Austin tries to cheap shot Michaels with the belt, but Sean avoids it and Earl tells everyone to just calm the fuck down. <laughs> a bullshit chance and Booze ring out. Austin and Michaels eventually nervously leave the scene together. I love the fact that Earl Hebner's sort of like the super mega end of level boss referee. <laughs> and you can do what you like to all his minions, but whatever he says goes. Well, we saw on the last pay-per-view... Didn't we? That like he's not afraid to like stick the finger yeah. in Austin's face. That's <laughs> right, shouty fit at him. It was again. You look at this on paper and think Austin HBK. This is going to be good, even if it's not. You know, this isn't one of the real big pay per views of the year. It's kind of you know the the fifth one, if you like. But you you're wanting better than that. I quite liked it. That's it. I, th- I thought it was a, a a fairly decent match. I see. It was it was a good build. It did start off slow. But I think by the time you finish it, the crowd are relatively invested. But the, the finish, I don't understand why Stone Cold's done at that ref. And although I found it hilarious that that other ref didn't count the pin, I don't really get why Shawn Marcus is super kicking him. It's just, is this just a way of no one wants to lose that match? Well, that was going to be my next question. Did you see the finish coming a mile away or did you think someone would actually win decisively? I couldn't see Michaels losing. I just didn't think that would happen, but I didn't think it'd be sensible to have Stone Cold lose either. I thought so, uh, some sort of bullshit, I guess, was on the on the cards from the start. I thought we'd get some interference from the Hart Foundation. Yes, that would have uh, been a more logical way of, of of ruling out the match. There was some. Don't get me wrong. There was the occasional good sequence or good spot in this match, but it, it wasn't a classic. No, but I thought I, tell, I thought it was good. I didn't really agree with the finish, but. I thought it was it's the best thing on the card, I think. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with, you know, more with Adam in that. I think it's a pretty decent match and it's probably the shot in the arm this card needed in terms yeah. of waking the crowd kind of back up. But yeah, the finish, it, it's not good and I agree. I, I know it would almost be cliched, but yeah, the Heart Foundation running down and just causing the DQ would have made kind of more sense than, than this. Would it surprise you if I told you that the last time Austin won via pinfall on pay-per-view was way back at In Your House Buried Alive? Yeah. Yes. That's October 1996. That's the last time he won via pinfall. That's weird. So has he just been in loads of disqualifications and stuff? Well, he, what's he done? So he lost via pinfall to Brett at Survivor Series. Yeah. He didn't wrestle on In Your House It's Time. He won the Rumble at the Rumble, but obviously no yeah. sort of pinfall involved there. He lost as part of final the Final Four, four match by yeah. being thrown out over the top rope. There was no pinfall in the submission match at WrestleMania. Yeah. Him and Brett in the main event of Revenge of the Taker just went to a non-finish. And he lost via pinfall to Taker at Cold Day in Hell. Yeah, so it's, it's like He's not been inactive, he's been there, yeah. but just seems to not be having pinfall victories. Do you think his lack of definitive victories on pay-per-view is hurting his ascent? Or is the fact that he's sort of consistently hanging in the ring with the likes of Michael's heart and taker doing everything for him that he needs? I think the fact that we hadn't particularly picked up on that means that it's not hurting massively. That said, you can't keep that going indefinitely. He, yeah. he, he needs a win. 
I think that his he's continued like on an upwards momentum of popularity. But it's, I'd say if he'd have had like a significant number of victories in that, would it have gone any higher mm. and quicker? So I don't think it's damaged him doing this, but it might have slowed down his rise. Yeah, I guess it all depends on where you sit in terms of do wins and losses really, really matter in wrestling or not. Oh, look at Ty Dillinger. Yeah, he loses all the time and he's super popular, but yeah. he's not exactly rising up the card though, is he? But whereas Austin, you know, has made this climb up the card without kind of, you know, beating anyone of note really on pay-per-view. Okay, yeah, he wins the Rumble, but it's a bit of an underhanded victory and he, he doesn't get a pin on anyone. He's not had that visual yeah. sort of confirmation, if you like, that he's, I'm a top guy because of this. He's got another like over move, hasn't he? Like people, they they pop for the stunner, but it's not putting anyone away. So, well, anyone of note. Yeah, so, so it's a killer move, but it's not being used for victories on pay-per-views. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting that, actually. I mean, I hadn't particularly picked up on the fact that he's, he was losing so much, but I, I think he's done well. I do. Well, it's, 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 it sounds like a stupid thing to say, but he's got a lot out of perhaps not doing all that much, which means he's probably been quite effective. It's now time for our main event, The Undertaker versus Farouk for the WWF title. Seemingly by virtue of his two-minute victory over Ahmed Johnson at the end of Ahmed's gangbanger in your house, Cold Day in Hell, <laughs> on the 12th of May episode of Rory's War, Vince McMahon announced Nation of Domination leader Farouk as the number one contender to The Undertaker's WWF title. Farouk would claim that the WWF was a racist organisation as a black man had never been WWF champion. But don't worry, Vince McMahon would deftly handle the situation by in fact claiming that Farouk was a racist. Good going, Vince. <laughs> Farouk would wrap up by saying that at the King of the Ring, the WWF's white saviour would be a dead man, which I thought he already was, but oh well. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of his thing. Following this promo in the show's main event, The Undertaker would face Farouk's nation crony, Savio Vega, with the bout going to the inevitable DQ when the NOD interfered to give Taker a kicking. The show would close with Farouk posing with the WWF title. Being as the Farouk Ahmed feud can never be allowed to end, on the 19th of May Raw, Ahmed Johnson would cut a promo where he would back up Farouk's point that no black man had ever been WWF champion, but it would be he that won that honour, not Farouk. The Undertaker, meanwhile, would be wrapped up in his own continuing feud with Paul Bearer. Following the fireball angle back at In Your House Revenge of Taker, Bearer would make his return to television on the May 12th Raw as part of a promo with Mankind. His face completely wrapped in bandages, Bearer would demand that Taker return to him or face the consequences as Mankind egged his uncle Paul on to reveal the WWF champion's horrible secret. If you really wanted to tie the two feuds together, Taker's secret should have been that he was a massive racist, but that's probably not the direction that the WWF wanted to go in. <laughs> With their champion. Yeah, probably The not. racist. The Undertaker would retort in his promo on the May 19th Raw, choosing to focus on Farouk, telling us that the Reaper of Wayward Souls did not see colour. After being pressed by Vince McMahon, Taker would say that it wasn't time for his secret to be revealed. As we saw on the May 26th Raw, Bearer gave Taker until the end of the show to return to his stable or he would finally reveal the secret. As Bearer recounted his history in the WWF with The Undertaker and revealed that at the funeral of Taker's parents there had been three graves and not two, Taker ran to the ring and wrapped his hand around the fat neck of his former manager before yielding to Bearer's control. A huge six-man tag team match linking Taker's two feuds would be held on the May 31st Shotgun Saturday night when Farouk, Crush and Savio Vega took on Mankind Vader and The Undertaker, who reluctantly participated in the match at the urging of Paul Bearer. Obviously, Taker didn't get along with his partners, which led to Vader taking the pinfall at the hands of Farouk. 
Post-match, Taker would begin choking Vader, but would release his grip yielding to the demands of Bearer. The dead man would open the go-home June 2nd Raw is War, being interviewed by Vince McMahon. Taker would tell Vince that he wanted to wring Bearer's neck the previous week and attempted to explain himself by saying, it's very simple, but it's very complicated. Well, that clears everything up. (laughs) Bearer would waddle to the ring to chastise the WWF champion, saying that Taker would go through everyone on the WWF roster and Bearer would become the master and the ruler of the world. Heard that before. Cue the return of Sid, who said that he hadn't demanded a rematch from Taker as he respected the man that had beat him at WrestleMania 13, but seeing Taker yield to Bearer, well, now he wanted his rematch. Farouk would then appear at the top of the ramp and stare down the WWF champion and his challenger prior to another match with Ahmed Johnson. After a three-hour video package, which boiled down <laughs> Ahmed and Farouk's feud to the essential plot points, the Farouk-Ahmed match would obviously see the nation get involved before The Undertaker returned to ringside to fend them off. However, Taker would end up attempting to Irish whip Farouk into the steel steps, but Farouk would instead crash into Ahmed, knocking Ahmed headfirst into them. Selling for an insufficient amount of time for a man who had had his head rammed into steel, Ahmed would confront The Undertaker about his interference with the WWF champion, choosing to chokeslam the Pearl River powerhouse to a pop. For some reason, the Sid Taker main event would end up as a non-title match, I can only presume Sid forgot to fill in the appropriate paperwork, with Taker picking up the clean win via Tombstone. Post-match, however, you guessed it, the Nation of Domination interfered and beat down both men as the show went off the air. Concurrent to all of this is brewing frustration within the ranks of the Nation of Domination, mostly between Savio Vega and Crush, who continue to cost each other matches. Most notably, Crush costing Vega his spot in the King of the Ring tournament in a match against Mankind on the June 2nd Raw is War. Post-match, Savio and Crush would engage in a full-on brawl with one another, with Farouk appearing on the stage, but choosing not to get involved as his disciples rolled around on the canvas. He had more important things to focus on. Mm. Right, Vincent. Tonight, history could be made. Before we talk to Farouk about his matchup with The Undertaker, let's take you back to Raw Is War last week and show you the aftermath of what went down. The Undertaker, as you can see, being attacked from behind, led by Farouk, the undisputed leader of the nation, and then the rest of the nation following suit and just pummeling the World Wrestling Federation champion, The Undertaker. Tonight, Farouk, you have a chance to become the first African-American World Wrestling Federation champion. Obviously, the mind games have already begun. The nation attacking The Undertaker. You're moments away from what could be a historic night. Chances for old folks and fools. History will be made here tonight. What you are looking at, all you hicks out there, you can punch in the record books right now because you are looking at the World Wrestling Federation's first black champion. Undertaker, don't worry about Paul Barra's black male. You worry about this black male. Saw me. Todd Pettengill is with Farouk and the Nation of Domination. He throws to highlights of the NOD attacking Taker the previous week on Rory's War. Farouk says he will be the first black WWF champion and tells Taker not to worry about Paul Bearer's blackmail, worry about this blackmail. Okay, that was a pretty good line. Mm. Maybe that's what they built this entire feud around that single that pun. pun. Yeah. I'd like to think so. Farouk and Entourage make their entrance to mild booze before we throw to Doc Hendricks with The Undertaker and Paul Bearer. Okay, thank you, Vince. Undertaker, first of all, I think it's important to say that I don't think there's anybody in the world that doesn't know that you're back with Paul Bearer because it's against your will. You've been blackmailed into this situation. But from a personal perspective, and I think I speak for millions around the world, I think it's important that you do know that we have always loved you and we will always love you no matter what this horrific secret is. But how has this changed your mental preparation for tonight's title match? 
Doc. Zip it, Lazarus! And you, Mr. Microphone, you keep your nose out of our business. Let me reiterate one more thing. As long as I have that secret above your head, dead man, you'll do what I say, when I say it, and any time that I say it. And tonight's a very, very important match. And you're going to do what I say. You'll do what I say. Do you do what I say? Doc gets to tell The Undertaker his real feelings, which is a touching moment. <laughs> it's creepy saying that he has always and will always love him, no matter what the horrific secret is. <laughs> it's just, like, it's such a bizarre thing to say, isn't it? Bearer tells Lazarus to zip it and hijacks the interview before The Undertaker can talk. All right, Lazarus. As we said, like, Jezebel was, like, the er- like the, the earliest word, celebrity that we'd, like, looked at. Well, Lazarus trumps that one by quite a way, because uh, Saint Lazarus uh, first rose to fame when he was brought back from the dead by uh, Jesus. So, <laughs> was the Undertaker that. brought back from the dead by Jesus? Quite, well, I thought it was Marty Jannetty, wasn't it? But... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, uh, well, Lazarus has slightly, uh, you know, morphed in terms of its use. I think, uh, yeah, he'd been dead for four days apparently, and Jesus brought him back to life. There's a really cool sort of like passage in the Bible that I didn't write down that, that goes with that. It ends with Jesus wept. <laughs> The shortest sentence in the Bible. <laughs> the shortest psalm in the Bible? Is it a psalm? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, um, it's become, uh, you know, known as a term for people being brought back to life, essentially. So, you know, heart stopping and then being, you know, being brought back. And also weirdly used with, like, political figures who unlikely return to power. It'd be like if Tony Blair became Prime Minister again. It'd be kind of like a bit of a Lazarus-type thing. There's also a thing called Lazarus Syndrome, which is where people suddenly come back to life when, you know, people are like, oh, they're dead. Oh, no, they're not. Oh, when they undie. Yeah, that, that, type, <laughs> that type of thing. And apparently, look, the, the most interesting thing that I found, that the, the um, Commodore Amiga operating system repair programme called, <laughs> called, called, called Disk Doctor, apparently, it, like, if it does a successful repair on the disk and gets the damaged files back, it renames it Lazarus. <laughs> like it's been brought back from the dead. So, so that that's pretty cool, and also in uh, you know more popular culture, Apocalypse from the X Men was brought back in his Lazarus chamber. That's what brought him back to life after he sort of like died or something. I, f- I forget the storyline now. And uh, there's a Star Trek episode from the original series called The Alternative Factor, which has got a character called Lazarus in it. Do you feel like you've learned something this episode, Paul? I think I've learned quite a lot. Jezebel's and Lazarus. There we go. Bearer says that as long as he has the secret, Taker will do what he says, and Taker wanders off. Vince says that Doc was a little overzealous with his comments there. A little bit. Yeah, he doesn't like him about The Undertaker, he prefers it about other people. Taker makes his entrance to a decent reaction, taking his usual hefty amount of time to make it to the ring, as Vince talks about Farouk playing the race card. Farouk orders his cronies out of the ring, as Taker's pyro goes off. In the ring, Bearer gives Taker a good talking to, and Vince calls him a slug, which I initially mistook for slut. I, I think Paul Bear is the least slutty person I've ever seen. But slug. Also, it's, you know, of all the things that The Undertaker does, of all his moves and comments, is his most over thing turning on the lights? <laughs> Possibly. That gets the biggest reaction, I think, yeah. when it, you know. Farouk attacks Taker from behind to start the match before Taker grabs him by the throat and hits rapid fire fists in the corner. Taker hits a clothesline before missing an elbow drop. Taker hits a big boot to Farouk's face and covers for a two. Silence for the opening of this one. Mm. Do you see there's a, there's a sign in the crowd that just says Shadow Blows? Yes, I didn't get it. 
Well, I, I can only think of the Gladiator. Yeah. I knew that's what you were going to go with, yeah. And I think had been had been done at some point for doing loads of cocaine, yeah. so... But it would be weird that there was a British Gladiator reference in a... But it was really, he was really good at duel. He, he was the best at duel. Basically just kick everyone on. Big scary eyes, probably from all the cocaine. Paul Bearer yells at ringside, which is about the loudest thing in the opening of this match. Farouk reverses an Irish whip and hits a power slam for a two. Taker does his sit-up spot to no reaction and backs into the corner where the nation attack from the outside behind the referee's back. When was the last time we had like the sit-up spot with no reaction? Because it's not, there's not even a mild reaction, oh, I, it's I just think, nothing. I think he's perhaps overdoing it a bit these days. Maybe he pulled it out too early. Taker gets his foot up on a fruit charge in the corner and hits shoulder blocks while wringing the arm. Taker heads to the top rope and seems to be looking for old school, but instead dives on the collective nation at the ringside to a pop, taking them all down. Oh, I thought that was a really cool spot. Yeah, I, I didn't saw, see that coming. Yeah, something, something a bit different and it looked awesome. And that must be quite a risky move for a guy of that size to do. And for the people he's landing on. Yeah, that's true. Taker goes to the top rope again for old school, but D'Lo Brown yanks the rope and Taker crotches himself. He's an experienced enough wrestler to know that trying it a second time is unlikely to pay off. Farouk hits a suplex for a two. Taker hits a clothesline before Farouk hits a low blow in full view of the referee to no reaction. He gets a two. Farouk does distract the official long enough to allow D'Lo and Savio to choke Taker with a belt. Farouk throws Taker to the outside and begins dismantling the steel steps. He charges Taker with them, but Taker gets a boot up and then clocks Farouk in the face to a pop. Again, I thought, I thought that was a really nice little moment there. I thought Farouk took it quite well and how he kind of went over backwards with the steps going behind him, I thought it was a nice visual. Back in the ring, Taker hits Farouk with fists and looks for a back body drop, but Farouk counters with a pretty nice looking pile driver for a two count. Yeah, It's not that often that you see the Undertaker taking a pile driver. I think like, Farouk's just strong enough to do yeah, isn't that it? safely on him, I think. We get some rest in peace chances. Farouk applies a chin lock, using the ropes for a bit of leverage. Is this where we get the Paul Bearer like shouting in, you can't win sitting on your butt from the outside, which I thought was an, I don't know, is that an odd thing for Paul Bearer to be saying? Or does that fit in with his character? We also get JR describing Paul Bearer as, quote, a big old pimple on the rear end of the world. The chin lock lasts for ages until Taker eventually gets to his feet and hits pretty much a stunner, which JR points out. Taker randomly looks for a big splash, but Farouk gets his knees up. When have we ever seen Taker do a big splash? Not really. Rarely. Mm. Farouk sets up for the Dominator, but Taker hits a back body drop before missing a leg drop. Farouk gets a boot up on a charge in the corner and looks for a shoulder block off the second rope, but Taker reverses it into a power slam. I mean, to be fair, they've both done good power slams in this match, but I quite like the fact that the Undertaker caught him to go into it. Taker misses a jumping clothesline when Farouk ducks down. For seemingly no reason, Crush and Savio Vega start having a fight on the outside, distracting Farouk from the task at hand. Yeah, did anyone else know why this had happened? To advance the story. But, but there, there was no clear... <laughs> there, there, was, there was absolutely no reason for it. They just it. suddenly started having a bit of an argument. This causes Farouk to turn around into the tombstone from The Undertaker <laughs> for the three at 13.43. Was this match really 13 minutes long? Apparently so. Wow, it didn't feel it. It felt a good longer. thing? Or... Yeah, no, I think that's a good thing. I, I felt this match was quite short but sweet. Yeah. Post-match, the Nation enter the ring and Taker gives them a kicking, hitting a choke slam to crush. Paul Bearer orders Taker to continue attacking Farouk, so he keeps hitting choke slams. This causes the appearance eventually of Ahmed Johnson, who questions why Taker is following the orders of Bearer. Did well, it? that's at least what I assume he says. He may as well be speaking Klingon. I think I caught, I caught no words 
of what he said. He said quite a few, but I didn't understand any of them. Ahmed then hits the Pearl River plunge to take her to a confused reaction from the crowd, who begin throwing shit in the ring. Paul Bearer stands over Taker as Ahmed leaves the scene. Taker sits up, his music hits, and he looks to confront Bearer, who bails from the ring, WWF title in hand. I'm not a fan of people throwing stuff in the ring, unless some of streamers is okay. Or it's Hulk Hogan when he turns. Yeah, that's fine. I've got this down as a piss-poor main event. I didn't really understand the finish of it or the aftermath. I didn't really understand why Armour Johnson was there. I certainly didn't understand what Armour Johnson said. Well, Farouk's there, so Armour Johnson contractually has to be there. <laughs> but as long was, as his kidneys are fine. I, 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 didn't find them, I didn't find the match bad, per se, but the story elements of it were. I'll be honest, I, I didn't think it was that bad. I, you know, certainly in the context of the rest of the night's matches, I don't, I don't think this is any worse. In fact, I'd arguably say it's better than other stuff on this card. Yeah, but there's some really, really bad stuff on this there, card. There is some really, really bad stuff, but I I think this is going to be a really tough one. I haven't really thought about what my MVP or match of the night is going to be here. It is going to be a tough call, but this has got to be up there for my match of the night, if I'm honest. Really? Yeah, absolutely, really. I'm just not sure who convinced Vince that Farouk was a suitable opponent for what should be one of the year's bigger shows for the WWF champion, but whoever it was that convinced him, they were wrong. Like, I don't know as if the Nation of Domination... I know they did some stuff to try and build a feud between Taker and Farouk, but it just didn't feel as if it worked, and you've got Taker's whole other stuff going on. Yeah, I think the the Nation in themselves aren't top tier in the way that they've been presented. They're kind of an upper mid stable, if you know what I mean. So it seem it does seem a bit bizarre that Farouk would be challenging for the title when he's probably not up on the same level as Austin, Michaels, even Mankind. Yeah. You know, he's, he falls underneath those characters. Yeah, it feels a bit out of nowhere that yeah. all of a sudden he's challenging for the title. I just think it's a shame as well that a crowd that was so up for anything at the start of the show just got their energy drained and this main event did little for them either. I imagine they must have all left feeling really disappointed. I think it feels like one of these things, you know, where in, I'll say, a well-written sitcom or something, you'll have the kind of weaving storylines that will kind of tie in at the end. Yeah. It feels like they're trying to do that but didn't quite pull it off. You know, in terms of you've got Undertaker, Bearer, you've got Ahmad, Farouk and Nation Domination. They're trying to tie it together, but that's the bit that hasn't worked for me. I didn't think the in-ring action was all that poor. Taker's dive onto the NOD was the highlight, I thought, but that yeah. was it for yeah, that me. was quite cool. Thoughts on the show overall, then? Disappointing. Yeah, disappointing. I mean, it's it's not awful. It's not like a train wreck. It doesn't fall into the sold-out, uncensored-type pay-per-views that we've watched. It's not truly, truly shit, but it's not good. You, there's, no, there's nothing on there that you just go out of your way to watch this match, I don't think. You promised me 1997 would be good. Yeah, it's not really stacking up in terms of pay-per-views, is it? Not yet, no. No. I believe it's about to turn the corner. Well, well, well possibly. <laughs> but yeah, I've got this down as a weak show overall. Austin versus Michaels, I thought, was the clear highlight, and even that is marred by a totally bollocks finish. Yeah, again, it's a real shame as the crowd were absolutely up for anything, but they just got served boring match after boring match. The, the pieces just don't feel quite like they're in the right place, and on the evidence of this show, like the card needs fleshing out. Mm. Like you say, like Jerry Lawler wrestling a 10-minute pay-per-view match in 1997, Crush and Goldust just having a singles match on pay-per-view for just Pointless. no reason. Yeah. Like 
it almost feels like if King of the Ring had been like a two-hour in your house, they might have had yeah. enough, mm. and some of the longer matches could have been a bit shorter. And yeah, you chuck say Austin Michaels and the main event on there, you might have had a semi-decent two-hour in your house, but it just didn't fill out a three-hour super card or what should be a super yeah. card. It's a shame. You're right. Match of the night and MVP then. The match is Michaels Austin because it was the best of a low to mediocre bunch. I think MVP, I'm going to give to Earl Hebner for sorting out the end of that match because I cannot think of a proper standout wrestler on it that really shone. Well, I think my MVP is Shawn Michaels for trying to help that kid. Match of the night, it's really difficult. I'd probably... And probably only warrants it for the last couple of minutes of it, but probably Bulldog, Owen, Legion of Doom, Sid and... Anvil. Anvil. Really? Yeah, and, and literally probably just for the last two or three minutes because I thought it was heating up and could have gone somewhere if it had been allowed to run another two, three minutes. Match of the night I've got down as Steve Austin versus Shawn Michaels is despite its dire finish. It was pretty much slim pickings on this show for mm. anything else I really, really liked. And MVP, as with you, Adam, I'm struggling to find anyone that really stands out, but I'd mention both Mankind for his attempts to kill himself and make matches with Jerry Lawler and Hunter Hearst Helmsley interesting, and Steve Austin for pulling faces behind Brian Pillman. Yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah. Mullet of the night. It's Doc Hendricks. I was, I was worried. Say no more. I was worried. It is Doc Hendricks. And on that bombshell, you can find <laughs> us on Facebook at facebook.com slash new generation project podcast. We are also on Twitter. At the hopefully slightly less underwhelming than King of the Ring 1997. New Gen Podcast. You can, as ever, rate, review and subscribe for all of our episodes as soon as they are available in iTunes. If iTunes isn't your thing, you can check out new episodes on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash newgenpodcast or on Stitcher Radio. If you've just found us and want to catch up, our back catalogue is going up one by one by one on botchamania.com. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today and want a little bit more, then don't forget to check out the bonus content we've been adding over at soundcloud.com slash newgenpodcast. This week, we've added El Generico versus the 123 Kid from Chikara's King of Trios 2011, but we've also reviewed a WWF house show from March 1997, a Michinoku Pro six-man tag, a Doug Furness-Philip Lafon match that made Paul gasp with glee, <laughs> Leicester City's Premier League winning season, and Hulk Hogan versus Shawn Michaels from SummerSlam 2005. All of that extra content is available absolutely free exclusively at soundcloud.com slash newgenpodcast. Episode 67 will be one that I, and more than likely a lot of you, have been waiting for. It's time to head north of the border to take a look at one of the most revered pay-per-views in WWF history. Episode 67 will be in your house, Canadian Stampede. Exciting times. It is exciting times. Are you slightly more hyped for that one then? Yeah, to be honest, I wasn't not looking forward to this one. I mean, all of, I think I knew about this one was the main event from what we discussed before. So I was kind of thinking, you know, looking at the card, this won't be too bad. And it was disappointing, but I- I'm expecting big things. Have you read or heard much about that show then? The Canadian Stampede. I've heard from the AE podcasts, the their commentary on the main event on the Owen episode. But that that's kind of all I've heard about the show. But other than kind of good things on in general on Twitter and Facebook and stuff. I'm aware of mega reactions for the Heart Foundation and yeah the the video footage that was on the Owen documentary of them all at the end standing in the ring it just looks absolutely amazing but I put the rest of the card I know I know nothing about it may well all be a pleasant surprise for you it can't be any less disappointing than King of the Ring 97 <laughs> anyway my name is Stuart Brooks I shall say good night matter what goodbye I'm still at your sports grievance goodbye
you've not changed it. Not this time. Under every stone, when you 